And good morning, everyone, or good afternoon, or good evening, whichever the case may be, wherever you are on this rotating globe on this evening in the land of enchantment in the United States of uh, just before midnight, about an hour before the witching, actually two hours before the witching hour, you are on the other side of midnight, and my guests this morning are very diverse, very interesting, and have such long pedigrees and credentials that I'm going to be very abbreviated and only give you the salient, most important parts of their backgrounds. You can go to the other side of midnight.com and click on tonight's uh, uh, banner for the uh, guest page. Go right under that to fast links to bios and you can find out a lot more about them if you are so inclined. Um, this is the Saturday before the official 20. 20th anniversary of 9-11, if one can call such an event an anniversary. I mean, I frankly think the English language falls down sometimes in its modalities because this is not an anniversary. This is uh, this is a remembrance. This is a commemoration. This is a uh, take stock of where we are. What have we learned? And that's one of the things we're going to be delving deeply into tonight. What, in fact, in 20 years, in an entire generation, what have we learned about 9-11 and what should we be taking forward? And as you're going to hear during the uh, next three hours, a lot of contemporary history kind of prescinds from the traumatic events that occurred on 9-11, which means the reasons behind what occurred on 9-11 are not only important in and of itself in terms of the the uh, the tragedy, but for the concomitant implications in a much wider set of ripples spreading out, like dropping a huge cannonball in a flat, calm sea. And those ripples, as we're going to be discussing this morning, have had very serious and uh, uh, very, very, uh, in some cases, uh, traumatic effect. So without further ado, as you know, at the top of the uh, program, <clears throat> I usually try to do a couple of news items. So let's do this. Um, let me tell you about some of the other things that are happening on the planet before we get to our main topic. If you go to, if you're new to the show, you go to the other side of midnight.com, click on tonight's banner, which says with uh, somewhat of an understatement, um, 9-11, 20 years after what have we learned? And uh, I, I chose that shot because it really symbolically limbs out the implications for the future of what happened in Lower Manhattan uh, slightly under tonight, one week to go, 20 years ago. Anyway, if you go to the banner, click on that, that will take you to the uh, guest page for tonight. September 5th, 2021. Uh, and under there, you'll see fast links to items in Radio with Pictures. Click on my name. Item number one, there's another major hurricane. We're, we're not even done yet in incredible measure with Ida and all the implications of Ida and the after effects. But there's another storm. Now, the good news is we don't think the Weather Bureau, the various models, both uh, our models and the European computer models and all that, they do not have this uh, major hurricane making landfall. 
uh, either, I believe, in Bermuda or in um, um, uh, somewhere along the east coast of the United States. However, because of the strength expected from the storm, it could even become a Cat 5 in the next uh, day or two. Even though it's hundreds of miles offshore, the um, forecasters are warning of life-threatening surf and rip current conditions all along the East Coast. This shows you the power, the energy released by increasing ferocity of cyclonic systems in an atmosphere, which as we all know, if we've been following the science, is warming. And I think I said a couple of days ago, maybe yesterday, um, that for every one degree centigrade of warming of the terrestrial atmosphere, the calculations are that the atmosphere can hold about 7% more water, which during these storms, the winds notwithstanding, has to be released as condensation. Eventually, as rain has to return as part of the inevitable hydrological cycle. Well, 7% more rain. I mean, look what happened in the uh, Northeast just a few days ago. And Ida was days after landfall. It was only only a tropical storm. So everything we think we know, gosh, where have I heard that before? Everything we think we know, particularly about climactic and environmental changes, which are now accelerating, and uh, are in some places moving <clears throat> metaphorically at warp nine has to be reevaluated. So if you're anywhere along the East coast and you like the surf and you like the ocean, please pay attention. Even though this storm is far, far out to sea, it could kill you. It could catch you in an undertow in a riptide and you're a goner. So be careful. Like I said the other night about driving in deep water and going out and electrocuting yourself, you know, with power lines after the hurricane, be careful. Most of the deaths uh, that are occasioned by these increasingly uh, ferocious storms are in the aftermath when people think it's all clear, when they can relax. No, no, you cannot relax in particular for you folks that like oceans on the East Coast, uh, don't 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 ignore this one, because that which you cannot see, which is far over the horizon. In fact, if you're if you're uh, not observant, if you're too complacent, if you think you're a really good swimmer and you venture too far out in the wrong place in the next few days along the East Coast, you could drown. I don't want to be, uh, you know, kind of. Uh, uh, Shall we say melodramatic, but that's that's the long and the short of it. Okay, item number two is part of item number one. A recent study, which was, and I'll tell you in a minute who did this, which was carried out by uh, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, indicates that the northeast of the United States, what just happened uh, in New York and New Jersey and Pennsylvania notwithstanding, when you factor in all kinds of various variables, it turns out that the safe in terms of the inevitable coming uh, progressive climate change, which is now too late to stop, even if we were to curtail the release of uh, CO2 into the atmosphere, you know, tonight, tomorrow, uh, there's, there's a long-term 
after effect that will take decades to work its way through the system. The safest place from climate change, this report says, is the Northeast. Now, that may seem to fly in the face of uh, what we just experienced in terms of the aftermath of Ida, but these studies are in terms of long-term trends, not in terms of momentary blips. And of course, the assumption underneath this uh, recommendation is that there will be appropriate um, investments in new infrastructure, the idea of building back better, which is not a bad idea, given that the current standards are based on climate and weather models from the 1970s, and they are dead as the dodo bird, as you can well see. It turns out, and I saw this a little while ago, that in the last three months, from June to now, one-third of the American people, one-third of our population, over 100 million people in a nation of in excess of 300 million, have been directly affected by climate change because some kind of environmental or weather disaster has occurred in their own county. Not country, county. And that should really bring it home. Particularly the still extraordinary power loss, something like 600,000 people tonight are still without power in Louisiana. <clears throat> and this is with every resource uh, of both local, state, and the federal government, FEMA, et cetera, being brought to bear, and something like 25,000 linemen and electrical engineers borrowed, brought in from other states, who have flocked to Louisiana to try to restore power to all those folks. In fact, I heard the other day, tragically, the two of those uh, linemen had died in ap well after the storm and trying to restore power. So again, even experts make mistakes. Please, as they used to say on Hill Street Blues, you know, please be careful out there. Uh, item number three, if you want to see dramatically what the flip side of too much water and too much surf and too much wind can do, take a look at number three. These are some images culled from a variety of news sources of the Caldor Fire in Northern California, uh, just uh, around Lake Tahoe, which has crossed the Sierra Nevadas, which is now burning in Nevada as well as in California. Just look at those images. And if you're not in the, in the uh, direct attack of, of a fire, count yourself <clears throat> very, very lucky. If you are, again, take proper precautions. And if you're in a place which could catch fire, uh, I'm here in northern New Mexico surrounded by evergreens, but they're very, very sparse. So we have looked at, I've looked at, you know, escape routes from where we are in this isolated terrain in, in northern New Mexico. Um, again, you need to have what we used to call situational awareness because change is occurring all around us. And if you think you're immune, you are not. Item number four. This is a kind of a segue to our conversation tonight. When the um, events around the World Trade Towers and the Pentagon, when, when the attacks occurred 20 years ago next Saturday, um, there, were, there were lots of implications that could only be very dimly foreseen, if at all. 
One of them, ironically, was made by one of the central players in this psychodrama, uh, Osama bin Laden himself. So item number four is a kind of an overview of how America made bin Laden's dream come true. And you want to read that carefully and look at the links because when you are the 800-pound gorilla on the playing field, mixing our metaphors madly, um, whatever you do has implications for the rest of the planet. And the United States choosing to put its enormous resources and its enormous military power behind invasions of the Middle East and the Far East, both Iraq and Afghanistan, have had effects, unpredictable effects, that even now are unfolding, including, um, as we're obviously going to get into, the inevitability of us leaving Afghanistan uh, like the way we came, quietly, not so quietly, actually, in the night, and um, with repercussions to follow our absence. So without further ado, I want to introduce our panelists. We're going to be talking about what happened uh, 20 years ago and what we have learned. Uh, my guest this morning, uh, starting with uh, our, our most interesting guest, who's someone who's never been on the show before, former Congressman Cynthia McKinney. She is a, um, a Georgia legislator who then evolved into the United States Congress. And that's a really interesting story. After serving in the Georgia State Legislature in 1992, McKinney won a seat in the U.S. House of Representatives. She became the first African-American woman from Georgia to hold a seat in the U.S. Congress. She was the first member of Congress to demand an investigation of the events of 9-11 in 2001. And she was criticized. And as a result, she was defeated in 2002, but came back and was reelected in 2004. And if you want to see all the rest of the story and all the other remarkably intriguing things that uh, Ms. McKinney has done, you want to refer to her bio uh, on the guest page tonight. And you can find that under the banner at the top of the guest page. Just click on Fast Links to Bios. Um, Matt Campbell is here because he is a brother um, uh, of one of the victims of 9-11 who was on the uh, 106th floor of the World Trade Tower number one. And he's currently living in Britain, and he's been campaigning for justice for his brother by putting authority, uh, pressure on authorities in both the U.S. and the U.K. And on August 26, 2021, the Campbell family uh, submitted a 2,500-page application under the U.K. Coroner's Act of 1988 to the Attorney General requesting a new inquest into Matt's brother Jeffrey's death. And that's one of the uh, key developments we're going to be talking about uh, throughout the morning. Item number three, we are also uh, honored to have Barbara Honiger with us. Barbara, of course, is an old, old veteran, and I don't mean that chronologically. She's been probably on this show almost more than any other guest. And there's a reason for that, because when Barbara opens her mouth like uh, E.F. Hutton, a lot of people listen. She has served as special assistant to the president. Uh, this was President Reagan, uh, a White House policy analyst, 
uh, director of the Attorney General's Law Review at the Department of Justice, and from 1995 to 2011 was senior military affairs journalist at the Naval Postgraduate School, the premier science, technology, and natural security affairs graduate research university of the Department of Defense. And she's got all kinds of other credits, but she's been heavily involved uh, with the 9-11 movement in particular, uh, serving on the uh, Lawyers Committee. And so without further ado, I will welcome my distinguished guests to the other side of midnight. Hi, guys. Hi. Hello. That was Barbara, followed by Matt. And Cynthia. Here I am. Congressman McKinney, may I call you Cynthia? You certainly may. I expect you to. <laughs> <laughs> well, I wanted to make sure everybody knew how honored we are to have you with us tonight because you have a very interesting panoply of experiences and a wide spectrum of, of uh, ideas relating not just to the 9-11 situation, but to a whole bunch of other things that are kind of going on. And I'm hoping that uh, after our experience tonight, you will uh, will come back at some point and we will discuss several other things that are kind of on my to-do list. I would be happy to. Okay. Uh, I'll tell you what, let me, because Barbara is so organized, why don't we turn it over to Barbara? Well, come on, you are, you are. Yes. To kind of give us a rundown of the role each of our panelists are playing uh, in our conversation this morning. Well, hmm, I didn't know I was going to host the show, Richard. <laughs> you didn't listen to Georgia doing her turn last night? <laughs> no, I didn't, no. Okay. I wanted to, but I was, uh, or I'm uh, co-producing the biggest, you know, as I do almost every year, the, um, the main 9-11 Truth Movement event in the world. And that will be the, um, the Lawyers Committee for 9-11 live stream, global live stream event. If everybody goes to my, my items, Bar- Barbara's items, they're probably called, and you click on that. I know Kintia told me she's got them up. She does such a great job. Um, you're going to see at the very top um, about the, the details about our Lawyers Committee for 9-11 um, uh, live stream and that will be on the anniversary 20th anniversary september 11th from um it's from 1 p.m to 9 p.m eastern standard time uh east coast time and uh, there's a link there for everybody to click on that um a little bit later in the show uh when we um because i want you to go to your other guests because i'm going to be on the full three hours and they're not but i just wanted everybody to go to my items and at least for now, for anybody who gets off the call before the first hour and a half is over, um, I want you all to see all of the events that you can see online um, uh, for the anniversary from the Lawyers Committee for 9-11 uh, inquiry for, from Architects and Engineers for 9-11 Truth, the 9-11 uh, Film Festival, that is an annual film festival for the last 16 or 17 years out of Oakland, California. Uh, and um, also in my items, I've got the uh, article from the Architects and Engineers website about Matt Campbell and his historic uh, action that he's going to tell you about in the UK that just happened on August 26th, a few days ago. And Cynthia McKinney um, is my soul sister. I have to object. I, I think you said, Richard, that she was the most interesting guest on the show. Or maybe you just said she's an interesting guest on the show. But I happen to agree with you. She is. But I'm jealous. 
<laughs> anyway, we're soul sisters, and I'm just so glad she agreed to be on this program because I think I think she's going to want to be on a lot more. So um, I, I'd like to turn it over to the other guests because they're going to have to leave before I do. Okay. Well, let me turn to Matt. Matt, um, you, it's been like about a year, I think, since you were on the show last. And because we in the United States have incredibly short, you know, 30-second memories, I'd like you to begin by talking about your brother, why he was on the 106th floor of the World Trade Center number one, uh, what happened to him, if it's uh, not too difficult to talk about that, because I know I, I lost someone so close to me a year, two years and a half ago, and it's like it was yesterday. So if, if you don't want to go there, I, I, I totally understand. But I think for context, people have to understand that this is not just a legal story. It's not a terrorist story. It's not a political story. It's a human story. And so let's start with, with uh, Jeff. With Matt. Well, yeah. I wanted to talk about Jeff. Oh, to talk about Jeff, Jeff. Um, actually, I, I occasionally, I've got another brother, uh, Rob, and I do occasionally, you know, just your brain goes, and I call him Jeff sometimes. Um, <laughs> But, uh, yeah, so my, my brother, um, he was 31. And it's kind of weird, actually, what you said at the, the start, Richard, about um, anniversaries. It, it is a strange uh, label to attach, a way of, of remembering um, an event that's not a positive one. You yep. know, we're not talking yep. wedding anniversaries or anything like that. You know, it's, um, and certainly prior to, you know, the September 11th, uh, it, that date had no significance to me. And obviously for a lot of people, me, obviously very personally, uh, with the loss of my brother. Um, so anniversaries, you know, are, are odd things, um, you know, to, to remember uh, a very, you know, um, I guess my death, a very, uh, my brother's death, a very horrific um, manner in which he died. Um, so he was on the 106th floor of the North Tower. It was a, um, a British um, event run by Risk Waters. Um, so it was a very sort of specialist um, breakfast conference, um, you know, looking at various technologies and stuff like that. And, um, and for me, what's always been hard over the years is um, the fact that he was only there because at the time I had a, uh, a software and cons a company and a consultancy company in the UK and we had a lot of clients to do with the uh, banking industries. And um, we had a lot of clients in the States and it just made sense for us to start exploring um, having a presence out in, in New York. And um, for the majority of 2001, um, myself and my two co-directors um, had been discussing with Jeff um, about the idea of him actually heading up our office in New York. Um, he was working for Reuters at the time, but um, there was a lot of overlap with what he did and, and new markets that he could um, his, bring his expertise to. And so he was actually at that conference. So was he a financial or a, was he a financial or a legal guy? <clears throat> no, he was a, um, so he worked for Reuters, but he was, he worked in the, uh, the financial side, but he was in IT. Ah, okay. His area, like me, myself, I, I was in uh, IT. Um, he was a sort of risk management um, specialist and Reuters at the time had some very specialist software to help manage those aspects um, of what you know their clients needed to manage, I guess, or not manage. <laughs> um, and so he was only there really to, to network because uh, we we kind of I'd say in the last month 
um, before September had sort of ironed out how the company was going to be structured. Um, we even did a little sort of mini test the waters, get the gossip uh, papers going, saying that we were setting up a, a New York office. Um, Jeff was still working for it, hadn't given his notice in or anything, but, you know, we envisaged um, the company basically being formed later on that year, and he'd certainly be um, be heading it up uh, in the new year. And so, um, yeah, it's, it's always been hard sort of knowing that, you know, it, it wasn't his place of work, really. You know, I think he had to kind of bullshit to his boss, uh, you know, how how you could actually be allowed to go down to this um, conference. Oh, my. Um, so he's only there really for, for us. Um, <clears throat> so he attended this conference. We knew, um, I was actually on holiday in Lanzarote um, with my family, and my mum had flown out the day before. We'd been there for a week. And um, so I wasn't aware that he was going to this conference. Um, there was a lot of email exchange the, the week before, um, I won't go into the complex story as to why my two co-directors didn't end up going, but, but both of them could have done, and um, they both had tickets. That's another story. Um, but I didn't know that Jeff was there. So he, he actually, that morning, at about two or three minutes past eight, had sent out an email to a, a kind of thread that I didn't see until afterwards. Um, and, uh, you know, basically saying very quickly, as I'm running late for the risk uh, waters conference um and his fiance caroline remembers him sort of in a bit of a, a panic struggling to get his clothes on um you know to get out the door but she remembers him leaving about quarter past eight and um you know he had plenty of time to get down there he was only a few blocks away um so there you have it that's that's how he he found himself to be at the conference um that morning not his normal place of work wow well it makes you think obviously the vagaries of chance and fate and you know directivity of time and you know he wound up there and other folks from his company did not i mean it, it really makes you wonder you know <clears throat> why we are here and what our role is and i i think you know that jeff's role maybe have been to help right an extraordinary wrong and to present unthinkable truths in a way that cannot be suppressed what do you what do you think um i guess that's that's taking on a um a bit of a it's a fate or it's inevitable that that was going to happen um view which I, I don't know whether life actually plays out like that i think we perhaps have a, a bit of a control of our perspective of, of events as they unfold whether they're intended to or not but um yeah, I think he, he is going to pay, uh, it has played certainly in my um, life. Uh, um, you know, it got me to question and think about an awful lot of stuff. I was very happy in my own little bubble um, and, until 9-11. Um, um, but certainly, you know, him in his, through his death is, is playing a massive part, I think, um, or trying to do um, what I can in the UK um, to... Not right or wrong, but, you know, to certainly expose um, certain aspects of uh, what we've been told um, as being, you know, a lie. Um, I'll tell you what, when we, when we come back, because we're almost at the bottom of the hour, I, I want to go into the suit and why this could represent mm -hmm. a, a major new uh, entry point into finding out the truth. And I'm also curious um, how you can do something legally in the U.S. from the United Kingdom. I'm, I'm personally very intrigued with that. 
So um, kind of hold it where they are. Um, you're on the other side of midnight. Uh, my guests this morning are uh, former Congresswoman Cynthia McKinney. Uh, and there's nothing former about Cynthia, but uh, we'll get into some of the things she's doing right now currently, which are very interesting. Uh, Barbara Honiger, who has been with us for many, many uh, uh, programs, uh, definitely has been us with, with many programs. And, of course, uh, Matt Campbell, who is the uh, uh, brother of one of the uh, uh, victims of, of 9-11. Um, I'm having a problem with one of my circuits. So without further ado, what I think we're going to do is go to a break because I can't seem to make something work, which uh, is not good uh, when you're relying on electronic technology. You know, back when we used to do radio in studios where we had all these engineers. It's not quite that way anymore. So uh, uh, you have to kind of adjust your mindset. Um, when you hit a switch and things do not work, it can be very, very deleterious. We shall return. As you continue to work on yourself, the tribe comes forward. They'll come right to your door. So just keep doing the work and it'll come together. Yep, as you increase your frequency, then you become more mature in your manifestation abilities and your other higher senses and gifts come online and then you have more power to make your world different and better and how you want it. And so that's why working on yourself is so important because then you're going to create the reality that you want rather than get sucked into the dystopia that's being created by the negative or shadow side. We're becoming uh, Renaissance men and women where we have multiple skill sets and we can dance from science into art and we can use both sides of our hemispheres and we can realize how much we have to really offer and uh, grow into. And this is what's happening now. This is where we're headed, into a really beautiful place. So we can rejoice in that despite the fear, despite what it looks like on the outside. This is how disease transforms. The mess in the chaos is necessary in order to see what you have before you so you can clean it up and just make decisions to change your reality. If you don't see it, how do you know it's there to even be changed? Or if you ignore it, right? Then how can you make the differences? You can't. So the mess is before us, accept our mess, and now know that that's part of empowerment to be able to see and to be able to transform it. Hi, this is Amanda Vollmer, and I was on the other side of the news and I really enjoy my time discussing deeper topics and really getting to the heart of truth and the things that matter in this world and what we are doing and why we're here and, and what we're heading towards. I really recommend listening in and, and learning, uh, expanding your awareness and your knowledge. It's important and these are the times to do it and we're being asked to pay attention and to challenge ourselves and uh, 
think beyond beyond the box. And we are back. Uh, Keith, we've got a problem with our, our main machine that I use for promos and music. So if you can kind of go in and see why it's not getting to the board, that would be very useful. Sorry for the backstage radio folks, but sometimes when you've got an emergency, you need to pull the ripcord. So um, if, if you can do that, Keith, while I'm doing this. So let me bring my guest back. Um, uh, my, my third guest of the morning is Congressman Cynthia McKinney. Uh, Cynthia is someone I wanted to talk to for a very long time. Uh, no, the other machine, Keith, the other machine. Thank you. And that's because you have been involved in so many interesting uh, causes, and we could take up three hours without even blinking an eye just beginning to talk about them. So let me focus in on this one. When did you, when did you first get into the 9-11 truth idea? Why did you think there was something weird from the get-go? And what were your first steps to try to get uh, an official, shall we say, reinvestigation of the bizarre cover stories that have been spreading for over 20 years on this? Okay, um, that's <laughs> that's a lot. <laughs> um, and Matt uh, talked about li- us living in a bubble. And I think I was living in a bubble, too, when I first got elected to Congress. I was living in a kind of bubble because I believed in our political system. And I believed that it was possible for our elected officials to actually represent us. I believed that the Constitution was the law of the land, and I believed that U.S. policy, both domestic and foreign, could be made better if we got better people elected to office. So that was the bubble that I was living in when I was elected to Congress and serving in Congress in 2001, September 11th. When were you elected? I was elected in 1992, got sworn in in 1993. So I had been there. So you had a kind of a database of the real Washington as opposed to the, you know, mythical uh, Mr. Smith Washington. That's exactly right, because I believed in that Mr. Smith Washington and then I uh, rudely was made aware that that was that I was living in a bubble, and so I uh, was confronted with the real world. Now, I of course <clears throat> that there was another side to the bubble because being African American, being a child of the South, going through the Civil Rights Movement understanding the abhorrence of U.S. foreign policy, particularly U.S. military policy, and, un- and uh, also understanding the, the diabolical effect 
on other peoples around the world of our policies, that part was no bubble for me. That part was was my path that I walked. But I actually thought that um, change, positive change, could be had. So let me just go through <clears throat> some things that I've jotted down here because I, it's it's I think it will shed some light on um, where I think we are now. So back then, I had this idea of elected officials being true representatives of the people. I looked at Senator Mike Gravel and the role that he played in reading the Pentagon Papers on the Senate floor. I was aware of Senator Frank Church and the role that he played in leading an investigation into the excesses of U.S. intelligence activities, both at home and abroad, and with the COINTELPRO um, uh, program. And so then during September 11th, of course, I was completely aware of false flag operations and um, <clears throat> understood that what we were seeing was something other than what we were being told that we had seen. And uh, and I got punished for that. Kurt Weldon is an uh, unsung hero, I believe, in this, in that he went to the House floor after a briefing that I attended as well about um, uh, Able Danger. He went to the House floor and he said, if it costs me my job, I'm going to get to the bottom of what oh, yeah. On September 11th, and that ended up being um, sort of a, a, a death knell of his political career because the last thing people wanted, really, my signal is bad. Okay, so the last thing that people wanted was for a an errant member of Congress to actually try and get to the bottom of it. With the exception of Dennis Kucinich and his objection to the Obama's war against the people of Libya, we haven't really had real strength, fortitude, courage coming from our elected representatives. And um, so I think what we've seen in terms of opposition to what the deep state wants is theater rather than substance. Hmm. Kind of like branding. If you brand an idea in a certain way, you get a lot of people to think, kind of get entrained in the, the idea of this is the way it gets group think. Yes. And of course, um, since I, I, I studied uh, international relations, I was aware of groupthink. You know, it's one of the fundamental books and concepts that you read um, when you, at your master's level because of uh, President Kennedy's ability to get beyond groupthink with the Cuban Missile Crisis. 
And so, um, you know, but then we have, we could even say that there was an end to, to journalism as well because we had Seymour Hirsch who uh, exposed the Operation Northwoods. And we didn't, we the people, we didn't realize how truly close to war the United States and the Soviet Union had come. We also... Oh, they were talking, they were talking, Cynthia, about shooting down John Glenn and blaming it on Castro. Exactly, and shooting down university students who were home for vacation, going going home from university for vacation and blaming it on Castro. So, I mean, this was our own Pentagon that was doing it. And then if you look at what happened with September 11th, it looked a whole lot like Operation Northwoods to me. So uh, hang on, hang on. The, I want to go through this very carefully because we don't have you for a lot of time, so I've got this great opportunity. You're in Congress. You're a sitting congresswoman. You're, you're, you've made history. You're the first black woman from Georgia to be elected. Congratulations. And you're looking at this, and something says to you from the get-go, this is wrong? Oh, yes. Um, what were the clues? Tell us, walk us through your, your thought process. Well, I read, I had read uh, John Shackelford, I believe is his name. I should have, I should know his name, should have looked it up, but I just woke up. So, <laughs> <laughs> so I want your audience to please pardon me. But um, so I was aware of uh, In Search of Enemies was the book that he wrote, which was the first he was the first CIA whistleblower that exposed U.S. policy and how it affected other peoples around the world. And he focused on Africa because that's where he was stationed. And he also uh, pointed out Henry Kissinger's idea about separating um, concern for human rights from a U.S. policy, and so therefore Kissinger had no problem recruiting African Americans with their lack of information on Africa and all things African, but recruiting African Americans to go and fight on the African continent for the U.S. deep state as opposed to fighting uh, against colonialism alongside the Africans. And um, this had a profound effect on me in terms of um, what I knew the United States policymakers were actually capable of. In addition to that, as a mother of a young boy, boy in the South, I also um, was sort of uh, concerned about why it was that you had a certain type of black person who could be easily elevated, easily reelected. I had seen this during my stint in the Georgia legislature. And of course it was replayed again in uh, the United States Congress. So if you were anti-black, but you were also black, then uh, and pro deep state, then you didn't. You got uh, positive press. You had money in the bank. You had campaign coffers that were overflowing. But if you actually were trying to work to improve the conditions of the black community, 
um, you had a tough road to hoe. And um, so I uh, was aware of COINTELPRO and had taught my son about COINTELPRO, even, you know, as he was very young. But I, he was raised uh, with me reading the COINTELPRO documents to him. That's probably how he learned how to read. So anyway, um, you know, I, I was uh, in this state of wonderment at how the United States could talk a good line, but could actually be a, a, a dragon of a behemoth. Uh, and so um, when September 11th happened, I immediately, my gut told me that it was wrong. My gut told me that everything that happened, say, for example, <clears throat> there was a, a magazine of pictures that was made immediately available. I say, how did that happen? You mean like a special edition, like Life used to put out special editions yes. of the magazine? Yes, exactly. And uh, we had uh, talking points that were distributed to all 535 members of Congress and everybody on Capitol Hill and everybody in the White House were were uh, reading from the talking points, which said we were hit because we were free. And I was supposed to take that back to my constituents and tell them that they were free. Well, it was a joke. <laughs> okay. So I couldn't do that in good faith. And I couldn't do that because I'm not a low information person. I, I'm a researcher and I dig deeply and I love to do it. I'm not satisfied with health answers. In fact, <clears throat> I was also aware of COINTELPRO against the Black Panther Party and how it was members of the deep state that organized to make sure that authentic representation for the black community in the United States did not happen. And Fred Hampton, who was a uh, uh, chairman of the uh, Chicago chapter of the Black Panther Party was murdered by elements of the deep state instead of being able to live and become mayor or even governor or even a U.S. representative. He was murdered in his bed after having been drugged by a black man who was working for the FBI. So, um, what Fred Hampton said was that he was sick and tired of having answers that don't answer, explanations that don't explain, and conclusions that don't conclude. Well, I was all aware of this. And so what the talking points meant to me was just another iteration of, of what Fred Hampton had said. There were no answers. There were no explanations. And there were no conclusions. So I said that it is incumbent upon the U.S. government to conduct an independent investigation of what happened on September 11th. And that's why I got kicked out of Congress the first time. Wow. Fascinating. Fascinating. So your radar said as you're watching those planes and you're watching number two hit, this isn't 
right. I mean, apart from the horrific nature of the event, the the uh, commentary, the narration, the preparation of materials told you somebody knew this was coming. Well, what it told me, I had enough background to understand that things don't just happen. Things are made to happen. That's the nature of politics. But wasn't that FDR? In politics, there's no such thing as coincidence, he kept saying. Oh, okay. Well, see, I'm not aware of FDR saying that. You, but may, you may freely steal it from now on. <laughs> With attribution, of course. <laughs> well, you know the old joke, you know, a poor poets plagiarize, great poets steal. <laughs> Okay, so uh, yeah, so so anyway, there was there was digging to be done, and I made that that statement, which was ridiculed. I learned also how the U.S. deep state moves because it was Juliet Alperin at the Washington Post. Now I wrote uh, I wrote an op-ed, and I said if if a train derails or an airplane crashes, you have the National Transportation Safety Board kicked into action and you get an investigation that has subpoena power and you can get real answers so that this accident never happens again. Well, we were saying that uh, we're going to make sure September 11th never happens again, but there was no mechanism in which to do it. And then when we were having the briefings that were supposed to be closed briefings for members only, one particular member of Congress has snuck individuals into the House chamber who had no business being there. And in fact, they represented another country. And so, wait, 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 wait. aren't aren't there visitors allowed in the gallery? Oh no, this was a special um, members-only briefing. Oh, okay. This is members-only briefing. Oh, I, I, I see. So I see. Okay. Only members uh, were supposed to be there Got because it. you know the hot shots were gathered together together to tell us more lies. They weren't going <laughs> to tell us what had happened, and uh, even. Uh, at that, I think their minders were there, that were were ushered in. These happened to be people who were invited into the chamber by Tom Lantos. And it was the temerity of a freshman member who didn't know that he was supposed to keep his mouth shut and not tell on Tom Lantos, who was like the grand... Um, ohm, not the grand dame, but the grand ohm of um, of the of the the U.S. Congress, and uh, so they were ignominiously uh, escorted out. But it was there for all of us to see that Tom Lantos had snuck about five people in who had no business being there. Now, when you say had no business, are you, are you talking pejoratively, or were you happy that Lantos had tried to expand the uh, uh, briefing uh, selection? 
No, I'm I am not happy about it at all. A members only briefing sh- means just that. It doesn't mean people who are not supposed who are not members to be there. Well, and I, it was I don't mean this to be a diversion, but if if he if he was the old man and I, I watched Lando's career for many years, why did he do that? Lantos was also the APAC representative. American Israel Public Affairs for the Congress. And there's always a point person. So whenever Lantos would introduce legislation, you knew, well, I learned the hard way that you had to look at it twice (laughs) because there was always something in it for Israel and you needed to make sure that of what you were voting for. But you see, that was what that meant was that Lantos was untouchable. And this freshman member didn't realize that Lantos was one of the untouchables, uh, not in the um, Indian caste system way, but um, in the uh, U.S. nobility way that uh, you couldn't, uh, if Lantos did it, it, it just stood. And that was because you didn't want to get on the wrong side of the American Israel Public Affairs Committee. Hmm. Okay. Richard, could I ask a question? Yeah, by all means. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, the first thing I'd like, I have two questions, a comment and a question. Um, Cynthia is being much too modest and humble. Um, <laughs> I hope that, I hope that Cynthia will, will in a moment, um, tell everyone about how she is the hero of 9-11 truth in the U S Congress. No one but Cynthia McKinney, held an official U.S. House of Representatives two two all-day-long hearings bringing in witnesses, 9-11 victims' family members, uh, CIA whistleblowers, etc. I was there in in this magnificent uh, house chamber with chandeliers with Cynthia up there on the dais, and she ran those for two days. Um, official House of Representatives investigational hearings on the truth about 9-11. And I would like to have Cynthia please talk about that. And the other, the other question I have, Cynthia, maybe you're not uh, at, at liberty to tell us, but please, if you can, tell us what you can tell us about the briefing about 9-11 for that members only. That's that was story. the one I was going to get to. Thank you, Barbara. Yeah. Well, basically, um, on the Hill, once you've been there for a minute, if you come there with some background, that is also, I guess, and if you manage to get the bubble that you're in when you arrive there pierced in some kind of way, um, and so then I guess you could call it in in today's parlance, I guess it would be your red-pilled. Mm-hmm. So, um, uh, what happened was, uh, I was red pilled very early on. And, uh, so I was able, thank goodness, to look at things more realistically. And I guess it was, uh, something about that, the, that, that moment when the freshman member challenged the, the, Mr. Mr. Speaker, there are people in this room who have no business being here. And he stood up and he pointed. (laughs) And that was a moment like, 
I mean, that was such a special moment because it just never happened. Uh, uh, Tom Lantos and others like him walked on, they, they, they literally walked on water um, and the water was every aspect of that United States Capitol. Well, the whole so seniority was, system. Well, no, because if you it, it's for the money that if you're on the wrong side of the American Israel Public Affairs Committee, you don't get money, and it takes money to get reelected. Mm-hmm. So you don't get the money. And you're subject to get kicked out. The example that I that was set by me is that I was extremely popular in Georgia, and uh, but I was an example for all of the other black members of Congress. Look, we don't care how popular you are. If you go against us, you're going to get treated just like her. You're going to be gone. Few of them, like Eddie Bernice Johnson from Dallas, actually complained to APAC about the way they targeted me. They targeted um, Cleo Fields of Louisiana. They targeted um, Earl Hilliard of Alabama. We were the first. Uh, uh, Alabama had never sent a black person to Congress since Reconstruction, and um, we were it. And yet APAC was able to go into our districts and tell lies, spend a lot of money, recruit people, representatives for APAC, who um, were more concerned about Tel Aviv than they were about Birmingham or Montgomery. Okay, uh, Cynthia, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry I have to cut in. We're at the top of the hour. My guests this morning are Congressman, former Congressman Cynthia McKinney, uh, our old uh, friend and colleague Barbara Honiger, and Matt Campbell, whose brother died in the World Trade Catastrophe 20 years ago. We're learning from Cynthia about the real world in Washington, including lobbyists and money. And we're going to get to how this all converges on the 9-11 inquiry when we come back. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. We shall return. side of midnight.com talk radio with pictures on demand liberate your hyperdimensional time scale and non-linearly access over 400 hours of conversation at the cutting edge of science and thought join club 19.5 to get access to exclusive content that fits your interests and time schedule filter episodes by guest or subject. Membership costs $9.95 a month, $0.33 cents a day. 
Talk Radio with pictures on demand. The other side of midnight.com. Welcome back, everyone, on this Sunday night, September 5th, 2021. We're talking tonight about 9-11. 20 years ago, uh, next Saturday night, a week from now, 9-11 took place. And it had stunning repercussions. What we're hearing this morning, starting with uh, representative, former Representative Cynthia McKinney, is how it was treated in in the Congress, in the House of Representatives. And so we shall return to Cynthia describing. So when, when the objection was raised uh, against uh, Santos inviting these folks in, what was the result? And you know, let's focus because we don't have a lot of time. What was the result of that briefing? What did you learn there that was at variance with what you've learned in many other investigations since? I learned absolutely nothing there. Uh-huh. And what I what I found out is that um I would wake up every morning and I would go around the world and look at online that is and look at international media. And what I eventually came to understand is that the military and the intelligence services basically treat the members of Congress as if they're uh, junior partners in this. Or or worse, mushrooms in a basement. Or or worse, that's right. And so basically, if you, you what I used to say is I could get more from the Christian Science Monitor than I could get from them. And they're so-called five briefings. So I stopped going to them after a while. But um, well, and, let, let, let so, me stop you there because this is a question I've always wanted to ask. Back in the uh, Mr. Smith mode, is this the fault of the military, the Pentagon, the deep state, or is it the fault of the members? Because members of Congress, duly elected representatives, have really interesting powers, but do the members know how to use them? They don't know how to use them. And anyone who does, say, for example, I know how to use the power. If I were in the U.S. Senate, I would be using the filibuster. I would be using the hold. I would be using all of the power of the office. And uh, so the people actually end up getting shortchanged because we basically have descended into instead of real power politics being played among the varying interests domestically inside the United States, basically what we have are these lobbyists that astroturf the the members of Congress or the congressional offices. And so nothing is real. So anything you see on television is actually political theater. And so um, I got kicked out of Congress the first time 
for raising questions. And then I got kicked out of Congress a second time for raising additional questions. Now, wait, 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 wait. But people are going to get the wrong impression. You were not reelected. When you say kicked out, you mean forces were, were marshaled against you in your reelection that made it impossible for you to be reelected. That's exactly what I mean. Oh, okay, good, good. <laughs> well, I, 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 people, see, people don't know Washington. It, it's, as, it's as remote for most people, even Americans, as, you know, uh, what's going on in Jezero Crater on Mars. So we need to really understand people have no idea the power people have in this democratic republic if they know and how to that, use it. That's right. And that's why you have the astroturfing, which is a term used to apply to uh, the activities of corporate and other paid lobbyists that create the illusion by congressional of congressional staffers that there's a huge groundswell of support for particular legislation when it's just the corporations themselves paying for letters to come in, telephone calls to be made. It's all called astroturfing. So you have this this theater that takes place. So after I um, was uh, unceremoniously booted out the first time for demanding an independent investigation, um, and then I was able to watch, like I said, Juliet Iperin at the Washington Post, Tucker Carlson, who is like the darling now, but Tucker, <laughs> Tucker Carlson is actually an agent of the deep state as well. How, how do you end up on uh, television at all if you're not, um, if you, you don't have the pedigree that allows you to be trusted mm-hmm. to deliver a certain message? And so um, <clears throat> that was all done. But um, Barbara brought up the uh, congressional briefing that we conducted. And uh, basically, it was uh, my effort to understand and allow those who were affected. I was really affected by the Jersey Girls and um, um, Bob McElvain. Um, It was... I mean, these are these are family members of people who died in the in the uh, 9-11 event. That's right. And on a human level, if you just separate out, you know, policy and what it means and that sort of thing, when you just look at the individual who've been affected by uh, this tragedy, uh, I wanted to do something to help. And that hearing was what I um, was my contribution to trying to to be helpful. So let me again. This is so fascinating, and I'm going to definitely ask you to come back because God, there's a million things I want to ask you about the workings of Washington. But let me start here. When you were doing this, were you a chairman of a committee, or or you were, were you a member? Or in other words, how did you arrange to have hearings in the House on 9/11? Well. That it's not hearing, and that's the that's the distinction. So you'll hear me this say is, this is the technicalities I want to unveil here. Yes, it was a briefing, and um, and what's it was the difference? It wasn't a hearing because I was doing it on my own, as opposed to having the sanction of a committee 
of the U.S. So Congress. this is one of the powers of being a duly elected member of Congress. You can call your own briefing and bring witnesses under under oath to testify, right? Uh, not under oath. I suppose we could have put them under oath. Uh, I can't remember if we did or not. Um, no, you didn't. No, you didn't, Cynthia. But you could have. I was there. Yeah, for yeah we yeah we could have we could have put them under oath. That's right. Because I did put some. I have a lot of these uh, briefings because I did held a briefing on the Rwandan genocide because you just weren't going to get the truth from. Um, uh, the people who actually perpetrated the the deeds of course and, uh so you couldn't you could not get a member of congress and that's why i say uh, my number one thing is that you know we've got a different breed of elected official now that is totally unresponsive to the need to the national the the true national security needs of the state and of the people of the United States, everyone is a deep state player. And then if you look <laughs> at the 2018 elections where the Democrats actually ran more members of the Intelligence Committee than had ever been run in the history of the United States, such that, the, you know, we have uh, uh, checks and balances and separation of powers was, you know, sort of the principles on which the republic is built but if you have a blurring of those uh checks and balances and you have a blurring of the lines of uh separation of power so that everything is executive branch even the legislative branch then you have a problem and that is what we're witnessing it's sort of like the the rug of the republic that is the republic is being pulled out from under the feet of the people of the United States, even though they don't even realize that it's happening. Hmm. Obviously for a further conversation at a future time. So let's get back to nine 11. You hold this briefing. Uh, you have witnesses. What did you learn in the briefing that shocked you? There was one um, <clears throat> uh, uh, person who testified, and Barbara, you might remember better than me, um, but he talked about the road to fascism, the 10 states to fascism. That was really eye-opening uh-huh. for me. And So, um, so basically putting the uh, 9-11 tragedy in the context of crystal knock, that kind of thing. Literally. Literally. That's right. That's right. And he did it. Now, There, I think um, <clears throat> Naomi Wolf has done it, but he did it before she did it. And uh, so it was like totally brand new, hmm. a brand new way of thinking for me, even though I should have known better. Because I um, was friends with the founders of the Committee on Political Assassination, COPA, and these were individuals who had dedicated their entire lives to understanding how we could have a president whose brains were blown out in broad open daylight 
and uh, all of the witnesses end up dead, and and the Patsy ends up dead as well. Hmm. So, uh, and the uh, U.S. people. For, for those who may not have caught it, uh, uh, Cynthia is talking about, of course, the uh, JFK assassination and the quote investigations afterward. That's that's correct. And so we had that, which was a deep state event. Now, um, you know, deep state popularized by Dr. Peter Dale Scott, former. Uh, Berkeley uh, professor who served on my dissertation committee. I was so impressed with him. Um, And so he points out that when you have a deep event, you also have a deep policy change that would not have happened otherwise without that deep event. And so he was looking, well, all of Like, for instance, the creation of the Department of Homeland Security, I hate that name, after 9-11. Exactly, exactly. But before before 9-11, we had the Project for a New American Century that was writing these papers. And so they were giving policy prescriptions we had in our history. Now, I want to bring this up to date. So that we can get back to some of the other uh, guests, either <clears throat> Matt or Barbara. But um, so, so one of the things from the history that we know about is Operation Gladio, where organizations had been hollowed out, basically infiltrated to the point that the membership of the organization was basically intelligence operatives. And so you had actions that were being committed in the name of the organization, but it was actually part of an intelligence operation. And what I want to say is that, so we know how Operation Gladio operated in Europe. Again, for people not familiar, what was Operation Gladio? Well, Operation Gladio was a CIA, uh, they call it the uh, strategy of tension, uh, stay back uh, army. So these were CIA paid operatives who basically did an Operation Northwoods on Europe. So they uh, blew up supermarkets they uh it, the culmination of course was what happened in Italy with Aldo Moro and um his kidnapping and ultimate uh death um but and that was with the red brigades and if you uh go back and look and you see that the red brigades had been so totally uh, infiltrated that the Red Brigades, basically all of that action that the Red Brigades had done has really was really done by CIA paid CIA operatives. And so I want to bring it today, the parallels, because we've got Black Lives Matter through the Black Lives Matter Foundation, and we've got Antifa. And so now the question I have, not about not about innocent 
young people who are idealistic, they want the United States to be a better place domestically and for better foreign policy. That's not what happens, Tifa, and that's not what happened with Black Lives Matter, particularly the foundation that processed a billion dollars in donations, if you can believe that. Wow. So, um, so you, you, on the streets, and I know some Antifa members, um, well, they reported to me that they went out after the murder of George Floyd because they don't like police brutality, and it was just one more protest, and they were sick and tired, and they wanted to, you know, sort of uh, vent their frustration on the street. Well, what happened was that they were prevented from moving into certain parts of town. They were blocked off. These are the innocents. And then the professionals took over. And that was the street theater that we saw, the jumping up and down of police cars, turning them over, uh, Pallets of bricks were delivered mm-hmm. for the purpose of breaking windows and that sort of thing. This is all theater, but this is this is deep state. This is not young people who are frustrated trying to make the United States a better place. So I want to um, just bring that up because then, you know, on the other side, you had the Proud Boys, and then you find out, that the leader of the Proud Boys is an FBI informant of longstanding too. So you've got intelligence operative versus intelligence operative, and we're sitting back looking at them, but they're duking it out, and it's not representative of what the wishes of the people are, nor the policy, and nobody's talking about changing the policy. For all of um, this behavior, when you start talking about, well, let's change U.S. foreign policy so that people can have dignity in their own countries and they're not forced to leave their families, forced to leave their neighborhoods, forced to leave their communities, forced to leave their countries and their culture in order to come someplace and be mistreated. No, they don't even want that. I, um, and I, I, I know that. But here we have a... Um, a post from Ezra Cohen Watnick, who said on a Telegram post, uh, and and, and, and who is this individual he, again? He he was appointed by Trump to the Pentagon, and uh, he oh he was part of that last minute rearrangement after the election that's so mysterious. Uh, I think it, that was when he went in. It might have been a little bit before that, though, but he's still there. He's a whole uh, – Biden held him over, and he just tweeted that anti, uh, that um, communist China is arming Antifa. So now what that tells me is that there's there's going to be another false flag, and they're blaming it on China just like they're – you know. They're blaming it like they wanted to blame the terror that they wreaked on U.S. that they were planning to wreak on U.S. streets against communist China, uh, uh, Cuba. 
So, uh, but basically, it's um, the interests of certain individuals who are able to move behind the scenes in very powerful corridors and dictate what is happening. And we don't have, we don't have five members out of 535 members of Congress who are willing to stand up for the republic or stand up for the people of the United States. Richard, could, could I jump in? Yeah, by all means. Yeah. Um, I'd like to try to bring it back to 9-11 because it's already 10-22 uh, California time. Um, and I, I just want to, to remind your listeners uh, and the entire audience in the world that whatever position we are in in life at any point, whether you're a member of Congress, whether you're out of Congress, whether you're just working with your family or at your work, uh, the important thing is to use the power that you have to the maximum for good. And I would just like to go on the record here, and then I want to try to bring in Matt, um, because there's a there's a segue and a bridge that I can make between Cynthia and Matt's life experience here. And that is that Cynthia, as well as myself and Matt, and that's the reason we're here, uh, is that um, we have honed our courage and our ability to use the power that we have in the moment. And Cynthia did a magnificent job of that when she was, was in Congress. She does a magnificent job when she's out of Congress. Um, but when she was in Congress, I went to those two. She calls them briefings, but they sure looked like hearings to me. They were in this magnificent room with the chandeliers. It was a House of Representatives function. Uh, every single chair was packed. It was a huge room. And um, the, it was, it was a, a water, they were both watershed events. She, she held two of them. And um, so the main point I want to make is no matter what station we have in life, no matter where we are, we can use our power to the maximum for good. And I'd like to, if we could, because it's already 1023 West Coast time, uh, to bring in Matt to tell us how he's using his and his family's power in this most amazing way, because I'm not sure Cynthia knows this story, and she needs to, um, and everybody needs to, because I believe that what Matt has just is starting to achieve in the UK could literally be the turning point worldwide for officializing 9-11 truth. That's what Cynthia did when she was in Congress. She officialized 9-11 facts in those two briefings. And now Matt is officializing. He's in the process of officializing the truth about what really happened to bring down the World Trade Centers and World Trade Center 7 in New York on 9-11, the iconic uh, terrorizing event that terrorized the country and the world. So if we could... And Cynthia, too, could hear about what Matt is doing and the potential it has to turn this whole thing around. You read my mind, Matt. <laughs> As usual. <laughs> um, yeah, so, I mean, we're in a, a position here, I guess, in the UK where, um, by law, if someone dies in suspicious circumstances um, or, you know, obvious murder, um, you, you have what's called an inquest, and it's a sort of separate court system, so it's, it's in a coroner's court. And uh, when someone actually dies abroad in those sort of circumstances, um, if remains are repatriated back to the UK, by law, there has to be an inquest. And so ah. over the years, um, 
I mean, my brother's first remains were identified in 2002. Um, so uh, for, for folks, see, this is a big thing I was wondering. How could you in the UK influence what's going on here and you give them the answer? Because your brother was a citizen of the United Kingdom, and therefore that gives Britain legal jurisdiction over his death. Yes. Excellent. Um, Excellent. So his, his remains um, were found in 2002 or identified rather, uh, three more bones in 2004, um, a rather distressing um, another set of remains in 2008, which was his hair, a bit of his face, his jaw, his ear. Um, and then there was actually some another bone, um, part of his shoulder, um, was found in 2013. And uh, to go back to the inquest, so it was called for in 2004, and it was a joint one because by that time, um, I think nine other British victims had been identified and their remains repatriated. This is out of the um, the 67 uh, British um, victims. And uh, for whatever reason, it was postponed or adjourned until um, January 2013. And um, and so he had his he had his inquest and. Um, I didn't attend, I wasn't in a good place, and I certainly didn't have, um, hadn't collected or didn't have in my possession uh, the necessary arguments to put forward, um, you know, I guess, evidence that would contradict what the coroner actually found, which is, you know, essentially the narrative that, um, you know, the impact of AA11 into the World Trade Center, um, you know, is what caused its collapse and ultimately my brother's um, death. Well, wait, wait, wait. How could a coroner determine what caused the building to collapse? I would think his, you know, research is his forensics would be applied to uh, your, your brother's remains. He could tell that he died of blunt force trauma, you know, that kind of thing. But how could he tell what caused the trauma? Um, well, I mean, this is no um, slight on the um, the coroner. I mean she wasn't actually presented with any evidence. I mean, they just made the assumption. So this is actually one of the weak ah, I see, I see. points in the inquest is there was no evidence put forward whatsoever. Um, to... So the official story was adopted whole cloth? Yeah, oh, it's, it's almost a cut and paste job from uh, 9-11 Commission. And um, yeah, you know, it's, it's not, uh, there wasn't what you typically expect to, to go on at an inquest. I mean, it was, it was astonishing really. Um, you know, it was 10 victims and it was all over in about an hour and 45. And I think about three minutes was spent summing up my brother's life and death. Um, mm. you know, I've listened to the audio and I have a, a transcript of it. Um, I'll tell you what, hold it there because uh, we've got, we have another half hour. We'll just continue this, uh, you know, on the other side. My guests this morning are uh, uh, former Representative Cynthia McKinney and Matt Campbell, whose brother Jeff died by a very curious, uh, almost uh, random twist of fate. He wasn't even supposed to be on uh, the 106th floor of the North Tower on that morning. And of course, uh, our own Barbara Honiger. Um, we are involved in looking at the developments that have occurred now that it's been 20 years, a generation after the tragedy of 9-11. And what have we learned? Well, we're learning a number of things not the least of which is that the, the truth uh, could not come in that structure from Congress. It could not come 
in that structure from the 9-11, you know, investigations committee. But it may, it may be coming through a very circuitous route, one more thread being laid from the United Kingdom. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. We shall return. and his fascinating guests. Support the broadcast and don't miss another groundbreaking conversation. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive member benefits. Listen to past episodes anytime on any device. Search the archives of over 180 episodes. Membership costs $9.95 a month, 33 cents a day. Talk radio at the cutting edge of science and thought. The other side of midnight.com. back everyone Sunday on the other side of midnight here in the land of enchantment my guests this morning are former house representative from the US Congress uh, Cynthia McKinney uh, our old friend and colleague Barbara Honiger and Matt Campbell whose brother died tragically in 9-11 and through a very interesting quirk in British law has found maybe a a new avenue into finding out what really happened. So, Matt, please continue, okay? Yeah, so um, we we have, and, and going back to what Barbara said about um, the power that we have in all of us, uh, and, you, and you use it, you know, at the appropriate time, and um, that's what I'm, I'm doing. So under the 1988 Coroner's Act, um, you're, you are able, um, I think anyone can, but it's, it's typically family members of, of a deceased, um, can petition the UK uh, Attorney General um, to have an inquest reopened. Uh, and there's, a, there's a, a bunch of reasons that would enable you to do that. But essentially for us, it's um, evidence not considered at the first thing and an insufficiency of inquiry. And, um, and so what you do is you, you essentially put together your case on paper. And in this case, it's on paper, but it's also um, video um, footage as well. And um, you, are, you submit the petition to the Attorney General, which we did uh, on the 26th of August this year. 
So, and, the, uh, so hang on. The chief legal authority in Britain is also called the Attorney General? Yes. Excellent. Okay. Yeah. Uh, in terms of um, an elected MP, I mean, we have a Lord Chief Justice uh, on the, of the legal structure, but I mean, in terms of, um, I guess, from a government point of view, this is, yeah, the senior person in the, in the country. And so um, we've submitted the, the application. And what we're asking for is the Attorney General to give his um, permission uh, his, to grant his authority. Um, and if he does that, um, he would push that request up to the High Court, um, where we've asked for two things. Number one, the original inquest to be quashed and a new inquest to be opened. And 99.9% .9 of all the times it ever gets pushed on to the High Court from the Attorney General, the High Court normally pushes it down to the uh, Coroner's Court to get the inquest um, reopened. And so we're using this sort of peculiar um, mechanism that it, it's routinely used. So, you know, someone might die in police custody, for example, uh, so suspicious circumstances, and there'll be an inquest held. And, you know, perhaps the family aren't happy or there's, there's new evidence has come to light. Maybe, you know, a second autopsy is done or something and, um, you know, and a new inquest can be um, granted. So there aren't that many of these um, petitions done each year, but, you know, there are a number of them. And certainly as part of our um, legal uh, arguments, you know, we've looked back over the years of where they've been successful, where they haven't. And um, I think one of the key things that, that I guess should be stressed is the fact that um, in order to get the Attorney General to grant his authority, um, we as a family only need to demonstrate that evidence not considered his first inquest may lead to a different verdict. Um, we don't actually have the burden of proof to the Attorney General that um, or the High Court for that matter, um, that a different verdict is likely. And, you know, pardon the pun, but we're, we're so over the bar <laughs> and, and the of what's required, um, you know, in terms of new evidence and showing insufficiency inquiry. You know, it should be a straightforward matter, um, you know, for the Attorney General to say, yep, you know, clearly um, new evidence has come to light, wasn't considered, and yes, there was insufficiency of inquiry. Well, hang on, um, hang on. At, at the risk of sounding cynical, and I think Cynthia is influencing my uh, my direction here, uh, who's kind of shown us that, you know, at many, many different levels, the fix is in, in Washington, at least it was. I'm not quite sure about right now. I think things are in tremendously interesting uh, uh, ferment and that changes, if not on the horizon, you can see how to get there. But in the British system, even if the high court grants you a new inquest, how can you guarantee it's going to be honest if the last one was kind of just pro forma? Who runs it? Who conducts the uh, investigation? Well, yeah, I mean, that's a good, good question. Um, the, I mean, for me, to actually get anything of this evidence in court would still be a huge milestone. You mean um, on the record, even if the ruling is, you know, yeah. okay, okay. Yeah, so, I mean, for me, that that first hurdle obviously is getting the authority, but the person who would hold it is actually uh, the senior coroner at the West London Coroner's Court. And, um, you know, for me, obviously, although it's not supposed to be political, um, <laughs> we, are, we, are, we are talking about an elected 
Um, just many, many, of- many decades ago, Matt, an old girlfriend <laughs> oh, of mine yeah. told me, <clears throat> much to my shock and surprise, after uh, we'd spent a night together, she said, everything's political. And oh, did we have a fight over that one. And later, and many, many years later, Margot was right. When I look around, yes, everything is political, or at least has a huge political you know, uh, content. So in terms of the high coroner, who is he or she? How long have they been there? And what are their proclivities for truth as opposed to politics? Um, I've, I don't recall the, the, the man's name, um, to be honest. Uh, this is the, the senior coroner at the moment sitting at uh, West London Coroner's Court. I think he's been there for, for I think, seven or eight years. Um, but I said, it, first of all, the, the authority that we're asking for is granted by the Attorney General. Um, but the, the senior coroner, we, we found out only a few weeks before we submitted um, that we actually sent the application off to the senior coroner because um, there's also a peculiar uh, way in which we can expedite the whole process, um, which is we submitted what's called a consent order. And this is coroner's court. It's it's kind of just a completely different world to, um, you know, I guess the high court, the magistrates courts, all the various courts we have in the UK. It's in its own little sort of world. And, um, actually, the senior coroner on his own could just sign the consent order and fast track this. Oh, He'd just basically say, yep, there's evidence absolutely that wasn't considered. I can see that a new inquest is. So if he's scientifically interested, if something really did you have to present any evidence to, to was that kind of like an identical copy of the brief to both? Yeah. Absolutely identical, apart from the covering letters to, to each uh, of the two individuals. Okay. Um, so that that. So are me, there nuggets in this 2,500-page brief? Good grief! My books are like 500 pages. Um, that would would capture someone who actually is kind of purely interested in mysteries and puzzles and forensic problems, things like. In other words, a way to grip a coroner that may not grip an attorney general. Um, I, I, I wouldn't know. I mean, we've written it in such a way that we've had to lead them through the evidence bundle. Um, we, we do know that this is, you know, it's a pretty complex case that we've argued. Um, I mean, certainly I wouldn't have thought the coroner, uh, the senior coroner would have access to the resources to actually make that, that um, assessment as to whether our, our case on an evidentiary level is compelling or not. Um, but he doesn't need to. It's just there's a, a wealth and abundance of evidence that was not considered. And likewise, the Attorney General, even though they have access to a lot more resources and experts that they can call upon um, in order to make that decision, um, you know, again, we are so over the threshold. It, it should be really straightforward. Um, but just as I'm saying, you know, politically, obviously, with the Attorney General, I said it shouldn't be, but we all know, you know, it's not always the case. I mean, bloody Sunday. But you're basically in a, in a mode where it's no single point failure. You've got two entry points to get a new inquest. Yeah, and potential. Although, for it, it hasn't been established, but there is potentially an appeal process. There is no standard oh. appeal process, um, but there may we we think um, we could actually do a judicial review 
on the Attorney General's decision if it's Oh, negative. how interesting. Okay, next is, question. Is there a time limit? Do they have a certain time they must respond or like uh, uh, Barbara's filing or the committee's filing with the Southern District in New York, can it just go on and on and on forever and you never hear anything? Um, th there isn't a time limit. Um, I mean, typically, whatever it is um, where this kind of process has been followed, you know, you are talking three months to, to a year um, to get a response from the Attorney General. It obviously depends on, on lots of things, I guess, how complex the case is, but also, um, you know, in terms of having to get that um, level of expertise. That, Do you, you know, have like a background of other cases and even other unusual cases to, to gauge the time limit thing on? Um, yeah, I mean, our, our barrister um, has has looked at, I guess, wouldn't say similar cases, but, you know, he he has estimated three to nine months, but, you know, maybe he's being optimistic. I, I, I don't know. But like I said, the senior coroner, I mean, we, we might hear next week. You know, it, it's that quick wow. for him making a decision. It all depends what his backlog is. Um, obviously, we've had a bit of a, a weird uh, 18 months and some uh, courts, I understand, do have backlogs and others don't. Because um, oddly enough, to do a lot of this stuff by Zoom has actually sped up the process for a lot of um, a lot of courts. Wow! Um, after you know, you know, a, a definite a hiatus in uh, um, events in terms of uh, court appearances, um, it's, it's actually sped up. So we we don't know. Um, if we go down the, the route of the Attorney General, um, once he's granted his authority, it then goes to the High Court. There's be a a pause whilst the High Court. Um, makes a decision. We would definitely uh, attend that. We'd have to be represented by a barrister um, if we actually got to the High Court, because it, that's where it can get interesting. That's where third parties can get involved. So when I say third parties, I mean, it could be governments, US um, intelligence um, agencies, anyone. You mean um, the, the, the old Latin term, amicus curiae, friend of the court? Um, the people who can get involved at that stage are those that have vested interests, I guess, or are part of or affected in some way by um, what we've submitted. Um, it's not normal for that to happen if, you know, it's a straightforward request for a, a new inquest and the Attorney General has already given his consent, I mean, just his authority, because, you know, at the end of the day, the High Court is only looking at the same law that the Attorney General is looking at. So it should be straightforward. But I said, you know, you can get um, third parties um, getting involved. Mm. Interestingly, I, I haven't got the phrase in front of me, but um, we, it's not us versus anyone uh, in terms of it, it's not, you know, I guess we call it plaintiffs and uh, um, defendants. Um, we, what we're doing is we are asking uh, the Attorney General and, and Coroner's Court as representatives. So it's, it's not an adversarial engagement. Um, it really is just, this is, you know, a lot of evidence that was not considered. There new, wasn't new evidence. New can, evidence. We, yes, can we have a, uh, a new inquest? Okay, next question. Um, so may, I, may I jump in? Can I have my, have my question first? Uh, okay. I want to make a big picture comment. Is, is the brief that you filed, is it public domain? In other words, can people log onto a website and read it for themselves? Here. Um, 
um, it, it, it basically, I mean, it's it's just it's the custom and it's the proper way of handling stuff. But um, the application is not ah, um, okay, publicly okay, disclosed okay. at this stage. I don't know in the future, um, but for now, it's uh, it's only submitted, um, and you know, the only eyes on it will be the attorney generals and um, and the coroner. Okay. Apart from everyone else who's looked at my Dropbox folders. Meaning <laughs> <laughs> all of the intelligence agencies. Of course, yes. All, all, all the usual players. Okay, Barbara, you're on. Go ahead. <laughs> well, I just wanted to uh, to point out, I, I have a sense that there's been a turning point. And what's interesting is turning points happen in the zeitgeist. It's not just one thing that turns. It's like, it's like you think you're up against a, a stone wall for 20 years and then suddenly, you know, the Nobody expected the Soviet Union to fall, except, you know, for George Bush and TB and the CIA uh, <laughs> using $240 billion to, uh, ruin their, to ruin their economy. However, um, in, in this case, there is a geopolitical shift that has happened, a sea change. And that sea change is best seen by what happened just, I think it's, what, 48 hours ago or 72 hours ago. Um, uh, the 9-11 victims' family members in the United States, there's something like 16 to 18,000 of them uh, who, um, as a group, and they're represented by three main uh, uh, top uh, law firms in the United States that have merged the cases. I'm going to call it the Motley Rice Law Firm and Kringler and Kringler uh, Law Firm case for short. It's the, the big case against Saudi Arabia that was made possible by back in uh, in 2016, by the after almost 15 years, the final uh, declassification release of the 28 pages, which is the the word for the final chapter in the very first official U.S. government quote investigation unquote because it was a cover up. But in any case, um, it was billed as a politically staged uh, investigation. It was the Joint House Senate Intelligence Committee investigation that happened right after 9/11, but was their mandate was just to look at the so-called intelligence failures. Of course, there weren't failures at all. Um, there was collusion behind the scenes by the top levels of our intelligence agencies, FBI, NSA, CIA, et cetera, to enable 9-11 to happen in this country. But my point here is that the sea change that's happened, uh, elections really do have consequences. And no matter what you think about Joe Biden, um, he's not Donald Trump. And he has an entirely different view of what the world should be and what the United States should be in the future. And he has just signed an executive order in the last at most 76 hours, which you can read if you go to my items, Barbara's items, and scroll down there. Um, uh, I think there are seven items, and it's like number three or four, something like that, maybe five. Uh, and it is uh, late. It's, it's number five. Okay, number five. So if you click on that link, you will read President Biden's Oh, executive. look at that. Wow. Now that's, that's a serious executive order. He has ordered over the next six months um, a maximum transparency, declassification, and release to the public of all still classified 9-11 records. And if any are still withheld, and it goes in a series, and you can read the executive order, some of these documents might even be released before this anniversary in a few days. And then the next batch is in whatever it is, 30 days, the next batch is 60, and the final in 90 or something like that. 
But at the end of the process, and it's spelled out there in black and white in excruciating detail, that everything has to be released that is still classified, that's even tangentially related to 9-11, unless there is an overwhelming national security pretext, I use that word, they don't, um, and even if you do have that national security reason for keeping it classified, you have to justify it, and they have to justify it to the House and Senate Intelligence Committees and to the White House, so this is a serious executive order, and believe me, the UK, the closest ally, and I put that in quotes sometimes, but the closest ally that we have uh, is the UK. And the UK government, believe me, knows about the sea chains. They know that President Biden and the US government, the executive branch of the US government, and the Congress, just before Biden did this, Representative Min, always mispronounce his name, of New Jersey, Representative Menendez, he and Menendez of New Jersey, he is the main sponsor of legislation. Uh, that has been signed onto by uh, Adam Schiff, the head of the uh, House Intelligence Committee, been signed off on by uh, Chuck uh, Schumer, who is the um, majority leader of the Senate, and on and on and on. They are serious about declassifying as much as possible soon, 90 days. So that sea change is in the mind. It's going to be. It's going to filter down to that coroner, and believe you me, it's going to be in the head of the U.S. Attorney of the U.K. Okay, uh, Matt, let me interrupt your story for a second. I want to go back to Cynthia. Cynthia, as an old hand, and please don't mistake my use of the term old the wrong way, in Washington, what do you think of the executive order from Biden? Oh, well, um, <clears throat> quite frankly, I've been immersed in SARS coronavirus too, and I have um, uh, been focusing on that, and I haven't uh, paid any attention to uh, what Biden wrote because I've seen these commissions come and go. I've seen executive orders come and go, but I still am waiting for truth. Okay. Honest answer. Thank you. Uh, Matt, let's go back to you. So we're basically all waiting. Go ahead. So I just wanted to just say about the, the Saudi side, because that, that's been something that's, that's always um, driven me crazy over the years. And in fact, it was the one of the um, things that started me questioning stuff was uh, an article by John Pilger called This War is a Farce, which he, he wrote October 2001. And, and apart from, you know, commentating on the illegal wars and the bombing in Afghanistan that the US and the UK had started, um, you know, he highlighted the fact that, you know, 15 of the 19 um, hijackers were Saudi. And... Um, you know, I think was it a couple of years ago the FBI let slip the uh, Saudi diplomat. Uh, I think it was someone Al Jarrah. Um, he was the kind of he's always been redacted, even with the 28 pages uh, being unredacted. Um, it wasn't known who the diplomat was, and so bits and pieces have been coming out over the year. But my father is a um, signatory to the Motley Rice um, lawsuit. Uh, and so I've been following that with great interest. And, and obviously, JASTA was the turning point for both those cases, trying to grind as well, because obviously they added um, the, the state of Saudi Arabia um, as one of the, the um, entities that they're going to go after. Um, so, yeah, I mean, there is a lot going on at the moment. And um, I, for one, really want to see that that stuff exposed uh, way more than it has been. 
because it's been very frustrating to me that, you know, the most obvious cover up for me has always been the Saudi side um, and their involvement, you know, whether that goes all the way up to, um, you know, Bandar's wife, Prince Bandar's wife. Um, you know, it's just been frustrating that not more of it has been um, exposed. Well, isn't it, isn't, in isn't it indicative there's something weird because, you know, the Bush administration rounded up the Saudi, uh, you know, the, the bin Laden family and some others and shot them out of the country almost on, on an express airline. So they weren't available to be witnesses, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Sure. I mean, um, ju- Judicial Watch, I think, through a, fo- a FOIA um, application found out that it was it wasn't 150 it was 300 um, Saudis that were flown out in the days um, after 9/11, which you know to me is incredible, including members of, of the Bin Laden um, family. Ding 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 um, ding. But yeah, but you know, for me, I'm just I so yeah, I'm very um, pleased that that executive order has been signed. Yeah, we'll see what comes out of it and you know whether see, they I may be a little more sanguine guys than you are on the Biden administration on this because I watched how he's closed out Afghanistan and when he when he got rid of Bagram that huge piece of real estate which is perfectly positioned not just in Afghanistan but in the middle of of Asia as a as a base as a as a as a place for us to do all kinds of nasty things I realized he was serious about cutting the ties so we can't go back and get remired and and his adamancy of leaving and leaving on a fast track and not listening to the incredible Republican critics who would have lauded Trump and are excoriating Biden, that tells me there has been a sea change. And so this uh, executive order, Barbara, I find again, see, I look for consistency of data trend curves not any one event and i like you am seeing a trend and i think we're moving in the right direction right what's interesting to me is that the united states even though i still believe that we're the head of the five eyes and you have to add add israel really is the under the table six eye of course and maybe it's the the top eye of the pyramid but uh according to cynthia and me but uh anyway um what's interesting to me is that even though the United States is at least in the public eye, uh, the top of that pyramid of the five eyes, you know, the UK, the United States, Canada, New Zealand, and Australia, five eyes, and add Israel for the six. Okay. So even though we're presumably the top of those five eyes, or the first and unequal of the five eyes, the five eyes don't act alone. And so the very fact that I, I realized that that Biden basically said to the UK, to the British government, well, you can stay in Afghanistan if you want, but of course, without the US military, they could, they had to leave. Yep. And that, those, those cards were clear. So the point I want to make here is that, well, first off, for Matt's sake, and also Cynthia's, be sure and read that executive order. It's serious. It is explicit, and it is serious. And it is detailed, and it has time deadlines, okay? So that's the first time I've ever seen that. And hang on, hang on. I want to give you a context here. When Barbara Honiger says this, remember, she's not an average person off the street. She's not an average activist. She is someone who has served, like Cynthia served in the Congress. Barbara served at the highest level of the executive branch of the United States of America. She understands where bodies are buried, the real dynamic, et cetera, et cetera. When she says pay attention to this executive order, 
pay attention. Yeah, pay attention to it. And uh, Matt, when you go to that executive order, you just uh, scroll down to Barbara's items uh, in that long, you know, on the, on the homepage for this show uh, with Cynthia's fantastic banner at the top. <laughs> um, it's really great. Um, if you just scroll down to my items, uh, number five is that executive order from President Biden a few days ago. Click on it, scroll down, and you will see that the very first thing in the serial declassification segments that he's laid out over the next, I believe it's six to nine months, the very first ones, uh, it's clear if you know what you're reading there, that it is uh, about the Motley Rice lawsuit, okay? Mm -hmm. So they're going to be releasing as much as possible of that in the extremely near future. And I fully expect um, some of these documents um, related to the Motley Rice lawsuit that your father is a signatory uh, plaintiff in um, on behalf of your family for Joss, I believe that some of those documents are supposed to be released in the next few days before the anniversary. So that's mm -hmm. number, that's number one. Um, you have to see things in this big context. There has been a sea change, and it's been a sea change within the Five Eyes that includes the UK. Now, I also want to stress to people that the largest number of victims of 9-11 outside Americans are the British. 67. 67. British citizens died, including Joss Campbell. And so what's exciting to me, I just want to lay out what I see as a, not just a potential future, but a highly likely future, is let us hope, either way, of course, we'll take it, but let us hope that that coroner takes up the gauntlet, okay, or whatever you call it over there, um, that, that the coroner takes the bull by the horns and makes a ruling or says, yes, we're going to have a new uh, coroner's inquest. And I agree with you, Matt. No matter, of course, we want you to win. We want, the whole purpose of it is to have Dolph Campbell's cause of death restated officially based upon the evidence for the overwhelming compelling evidence in over 1,500 pages of the exhibits, the witness testimony, et cetera. <clears throat> Barbara, in, we, are, we are up against the clock. We'll continue this in a couple okay. of minutes. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. Don't touch that dial. There are surprises up ahead. We shall return. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive member benefits. Listen to past episodes anytime on any device. 
Search the archives of over 180 episodes. Membership costs $9.95 a month, $0.33 cents a day. Support the broadcaster to provide you with the most interesting conversation available. Talk radio at the cutting edge of science and thought. The other side of midnight.com. Welcome back, everyone. Sunday night, Monday morning now. Here in the Land of Enchantment, definitely here the other side of midnight. My guests this morning are uh, former Congressional Representative Cynthia McKinney, a British citizen whose brother died in uh, 9-11, uh, Jeff Campbell. Matt Campbell is with us. And, of course, our own uh, Barbara Honiger. Um, and now, before we go any further, I think I need to do a kind of a poll of the delegates. Cynthia, can you stay a few more minutes and kind of wrap up this segment of what we can expect uh, in, in, the, in the Congress politically here in the United States on 9-11? And Matt, I will then ask you to do the same thing. And if you can stay with us for more conversation, fantastic. If you can't, it'll just be me and Barbara and the callers. Cynthia, you go well, first, please. Well, well I, I would like to say I hope that you both stay, Matt and Cynthia, for my next comments that I was cut off in the middle of because it's important for you to know what I was about to say. I'm here. <laughs> I'm not. Well, you wanted, you wanted to make your comment first or shall I? No, no, no. I, I was asking uh, uh, if, if Cynthia and Matt have to leave us, I was told, remember they have to no. leave us. No. I can stay on. Super. Okay. And, um, so Cynthia, Cynthia I, hope you can, I hope you can stay through what I have to say here because it's really important. I think Cynthia's gone. Is Cynthia still here? No, I think she had to leave. I'm, oh, I'm, I'm okay. seeing a message, you know, because she's got an early, early morning. So okay, we will, well, we'll, we'll make sure she gets the audio. But she is listening. <laughs> I just got a note. Because she told, just, just told me. She sent me a note. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Good, good, good. All right. Hi, Cynthia. Glad you're still listening. Okay. Well, yeah, I wanted to continue. Before the break, um, I got out half a sentence about how important it is that the second largest number of victims, that's horrendous as that fact is, um, after Americans, of course, there were just under 3,000 people who were killed in one way or another on 9-11 and the immediate attack of 9-11 that day of. Um, 67 of them are British citizens, and Joff Campbell is one of those 67. Now, he, uh, Matt and his family are initiating this action, but um, once it gets into, hopefully, and we expect it to, into a reopening of the coroner's inquest, um, at some point along the way, and after I'm finished with the story, I want to want Matt and Cynthia to know here in a moment, um, I'd like Matt to comment on his understanding, talking to his solicitor, who, by the way, is a world-famous solicitor who has won many cases against the UK government, big cases. So they, they have one of the best um, attorneys, they call them solicitors there, in all of the, the whole Commonwealth and UK system uh, on this case for them. Um, but, but 
it's important that at some point, if they get the, the coroner's inquest open, my understanding is, is that any number of the family members of those other 66 victims of the 9-11 attack ah. can join the inquest. And then once they join, it, it only takes, just imagine what it would be. One joins in the media, and then the mainstream media, two more join, and then pretty soon you could have 67. And the, the geopolitical pressure is immense. There is no bigger geopolitical story than the truth about 9-11 when it breaks into officialdom, which is what Matt is initiating here. And then once it happens there, regardless of, of how many others join, and I expect them to join at some point, the other 9-11 victims' families, to officially join the inquest, the reopened inquest, then regardless, of course, we hope that they have a new cause of death, which would be the explosives and, and incendiaries that were pre-planted throughout World Trade Center 1 as well as 2 and 7, that that's going to be, they, their documentation in the 1,500 or more pages proves that. It doesn't just maybe prove it. It is what's called in the law, in the legal system in the United States, dispositive evidence. It proves it. So um, they should win. They should get a new cause of death officially declared. Whether that happens or not, but especially if it does, then 9-11 victims' family members who know the truth in the United States, like Bob McElmaine, like many of the other uh, members, 9-11 victims' family members, they can take initiate, they can initiate actions to have the official cause of death in their own jurisdictions, whether they're county level, state level. That would have to be worked out here in the United States. And there could be a whole raft of those cases reopening the uh, official uh, cause of death inquest, we call them something else here. Uh, in the United States, based upon the precedent of what Matt is starting. So what he's starting is absolutely huge. I think uh, I, I really want to reframe this, you know, and kind of underscore it, because even if, Matt, your your brief is not accepted by the attorney general or the coroner, after they make the decision they themselves you, you you can publish that brief am i correct um i i don't see any reason why we wouldn't be able to um well this is assuming we have been unsuccessful with any um kind of appeal or judicial review process i mean it wouldn't be until after that i'm sure but you know if it ended up dying and we hit a brick wall then yeah i don't, I don't see any reason why um it couldn't be made public but I would be surprised if we were able to do that whilst we were still doing it. Um, oh, no, no, no. I'm, I'm, I'm saying once there is a decision, all right? Yeah. Now, mm -hmm. let's assume, worst case scenario, that the, the, the attorney general and or the coroner rule against you, okay? Can you resubmit? Is there an appeals process? I think you made mention earlier there was potentially a, an appeals process. Uh, yes, that's what I'm saying. We we can do what's called a judicial review. Um, what we think it's not really been done before, where you're actually reviewing the Attorney General's decision. Has anything um, about this ever been done before? <laughs> no, because normally when they make a decision, it, it it's normally you know a very terse a paragraph as to why um, they aren't going ahead proceeding with the um, uh, the request. From, yeah, it's kind of getting like our our shadow docket in the Supreme Court over here. 
Yeah, so, uh, um, but they're not, they're not obliged to break it down as to why. Got it. Um, but we believe that we could basically force them uh, or force a, uh, a, a legal um, second opinion, if you, if you want to call it that, as to why um, they have turned it down. But uh, let's, hope, let's hope we don't have to, to go there. But what I was going to say, though, I mean, Barbara's right. I mean, for me, um, waking up and, and encouraging other 9-11 victims, uh, family members, to, to actually take action is, you know, for me, one of the positive things that can come out of this. Because, you know, we do have a lot of power as family members to, to make stuff happen. And although um, if there is a verdict that, that changes, you know, the cause of death of my brother, you know, there is whilst there is no automatic triggering of any um, criminal legal actions, um, you know, I, I'm hoping that actually the verdict could be used both in the UK and the US to start other proceedings. I would say the, the I said at the moment, only 10, to my knowledge, only 10 British victims who have had their remains repatriated have had the inquest. I do know there are other British victims who have been identified, but they've chosen to, you know, perhaps they're living in the States, they've chosen to keep their remains in the US. So, you know, I don't know how many people uh, of that number, but obviously those that um, live in the UK, um, particularly those that had the, the joint inquest, you know, there's nothing stopping them um, taking action. I, I have tried to garner support of, um, so I've got a car going past. I have tried to um, garner support from other family members in the UK. And whilst one, um, family member is joining me, uh, those at the inquest aren't, um, not at least not publicly. Um, one or two families have, are happy with what I'm doing, but they just don't want to go public. I mean, it's not an easy thing to do, um, you know, even amongst your own family and friends, let alone doing this in the, in the public, public eye. So let me ask uh, this very, uh, if it's too touchy, you know, you don't have to answer it, but of, of, the, of the families you're in touch with, you know, have firsthand experience. How many believe the official story and how many have questions? Um, well, I probably have only been in contact with probably about 20 um, victim families. Mm -hmm. um, and I know of at least three. That's um, not a bad percentage. It's no, not at all. Um, you know, it's, it, but I said it, it is hard to get them. But that's in the current political environment. If, in the best case scenario, the attorney general or the coroner give you a green light and you can go forward with a new inquest, would you project that a lot more families will get suddenly interested and interested for the right reasons? Um, well, there's certainly be some interest. I, I would hope certainly some for the, for the right reasons. Um, yeah, I, I think very much so. I mean, the press coverage I've had um, to date um, over uh, our submission, you know, is encouraging. At least it's making the papers. Um, yeah, tell us, uh, today was a yeah. very full day for you, which is why, you know, I'm very grateful that you're sticking around a little longer. But you've got a book schedule, and it's all media briefings, right? Yeah, I've got um, two, um, I guess you call it regional um radio um, stations from the BBC interviewing me this morning. Um, and then I have, there's a new uh, news channel called GB News mm. in the UK, mm -hmm. um, who are filming and interviewing me um, this afternoon, um, which 
it'll be the first time I've actually, you know, I guess on TV, I've been in the press, you know, printed media and online. Um, but that, that could be, um, yeah, it could be interesting just because it's it, nothing. Well, you remember out. my old friend Gene Roddenberry's comment. He was a very famous, you may not be aware of Gene Roddenberry over in England, but here he's very famous. Oh. He was a producer in Hollywood. Uh, he produced Star Trek. That's and right, yeah. He's an old friend of mine. And he told me point blank one day about a very controversial, you know, investigation. He says, but Dick, if this is real, it would be on television. So the fact, map that you're on television tells me with Barbara, the trend curve is in the right direction. Right. I, I also have a, an outstanding, I think you're very right. There's a, um, they contacted me last week. So um, BBC Breakfast News um, want to have me live on Friday morning. Super. I'm waiting, for them, I'm waiting for them to confirm that, but you know. Do they simulcast uh, that on BBC America? Could we watch it? Uh, well, I'm waiting for them to confirm. Um, previously, when I've dealt with the BBC, uh, it took three weeks to get approval to go on to a uh, <laughs> just a, ro- a local radio show in in Sussex where I live. Right. Uh, so this is obviously a little bit of a uh, a, a gearing up. Um, and so it'll be interesting to see if they do still want me on. Um, so I'm waiting to hear back. But is this but, going yeah, to be in the studio or via Zoom? No, this is in the studio. Oh, wow. Traveling up to the north uh, west of England. See, uh, these are all little clues about the seriousness of the media taking a look at this. Uh, Absolutely. I think uh, it's always um, anyone I've spoken to, this includes um, family and friends who perhaps have always viewed that, you know, my views are a little bit contrarian and, and all the rest of it. As soon as I started talking about the inquest, they sort of took notice. And, and because it, you know, there's been some favourable um, press coverage. Um, you know, it, it it just gives it that kind of gravitas that's a bit more serious, and um, and so they're taking notice just because it's going in the media, like you say. It's, you know, I'll, I'll believe it when I see it on TV, um, kind of thing. So, um, there's a you know, I'm not also, I'm not naive enough to know that there's a there is a long journey ahead. It's going to be a long road to justice and and getting this going but um you know i I remain optimistic at this stage uh, in any event that we are going to be successful and and get this evidence into court what what is the um the famous i believe it's martin luther king quote the arc of the universe is long but it bends towards justice that's the one and i feel that we're over the top of that hill this is a feeling from somebody who's myself in this case um who has been Actively breathing 9-11 truth research, publicity, activism, ever since the day of 9-11, and doing so from the inside of the government and the outside of the government as well, um, like Cynthia. There is a change. I can feel it, and I can see it. It's happening on the inside of people, and it's happening in the physical world, the stuff that you can, you know, hit the wall with your hands. Um, well, well, to kind of paraphrase George Lucas, um, I think the force is with us. The uh-huh. hyperdimensional physics is with us. This is what the model, you know, George and you and I can have an interesting discussion some night. But yeah, there are winds of change, fundamental systemic change, just like there's a bunch of other systemic things. And I believe we're on the right side of history and history is finally taking awareness. You know, going back, Matt, to a, to a very strange 
comment from one of Trump's senior advisors years ago when when she, you know, from the White House driveway said, but there are alternative facts. <laughs> what you're presenting, <laughs> what you're, yeah. yeah, Kellyanne Conway, what you're presenting that the world will have to take cognizance of either if the if the brief is accepted or if it's rejected is there's a new set of alternative facts that become official just by you filing them right exactly and you know at some point here i would like to segue into at least a little bit about the lawyers committee for 911 inquiry which is why i'm on the call really um, because that is what the Lawyers Committee for 9-11 Inquiry here in the United States, we're actually uh, in partnership in a way um, with uh, what Matt is doing there in the UK, because these are both legal. What we do, everything the Lawyers Committee has done over the past five years has been officializing the facts with our legal filings in the, to the U.S. Attorney in the Southern District of New York, the Manhattan Federal Courthouse, uh, which has it's the seat of jurisdiction of the federal courts for Manhattan and everything that happened at Ground Zero on 9-11. And uh, we have filed also in uh, the Federal District uh, Court uh, in Washington, D.C. Um, I am personally uh, a plaintiff along with the entire Lawyers Committee Board as a board member. Um, along with Richard Gage and uh, Vickham's family members, uh, architects and engineers for 9-11 Truth, we're all plaintiffs in a uh, legal filing in D.C. federal court. Um, I'm a personal, I am personally a plaintiff uh, in, a, in a lawsuit against uh, the Attorney General of the United States and the head of the FBI. Um, and uh, in just a few days, I would say by Friday it has to be, our Lawyers Committee for 9-11 Inquiry, is about to file a new uh, petition for a special criminal grand jury with the U.S. Attorney for the Federal Court for the Federal District of uh, Washington, D.C. Uh, in the Anthrax case, uh, which is extremely important because if you recall, those anthrax attacks 20 years ago were part and parcel of the 9-11 attacks. They, they were the so-called second wave attacks. And regardless of who they were blamed on and regardless of who the government set up as the Patsy, which, of course, uh, Bruce Ivins didn't do the anthrax attacks. And, and our filing with the U.S. Attorney for the District of Columbia in just a few days, no later than this Friday, coming Friday, uh, proves that Bruce Ivins didn't do it. It's like, uh, you know, proving that Lee Harvey Oswald didn't uh, mm. kill Kennedy. Barbara, so, if, 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 if my memory serves me, there's actual forensic evidence that the anthrax used in the attacks was traceable uh, through the FBI to a false flag operation. Am I, am I correct? Well, I'm not sure what you mean in that case by a false flag operation. The Patsy... Well, that they had inside help, that it wasn't, it wasn't somebody making this stuff up in their kitchen. It was weaponized. Oh, yes, yes of course. There's no question about it. The, especially the, the, the very first Amtrak, uh, it was sent to Bob Stevenson, Florida. He died on October 5th, 2001. Uh, the anthrax that was sent to his uh, American Media Inc. that publishes these supermarket rags in the United States, you know, like the National Enquirer and such. Um, he was the first death from the anthrax on October 5th, 2001. And the anthrax that was sent to him in a letter was highly weaponized. And it was weaponized to the same, if you can imagine, one 
trillion scores per gram. One trillion scores per gram in the, with about two grams in the letter. So two trillion spores, and they were weaponized, um, they were highly powderized, they were milled, and they were aerosolized, which is the process of creating a bioweapon. And those that, that extremely militarized bioweapon were, was also the anthrax that were in the letters that were sent to Senators Leahy and Daschle. So that was, the, that was an actual attack on the U.S. Congress, specifically. So the importance of the, the reason I and and it, also major media because I think they sent one set to NBC yes, yes. and one yes, set to the New York Times. Uh, no, not the New York Times. Uh, NBC, two other media outlets, and then Bob Stevens down in Florida were the four media letters. Ah, okay. There were the two to the members of Congress, but the three to the media, the top media, including NBC, Tom Brokaw, um, those were not as weaponized. Those were much less. Uh, process. Uh, it was the same aim as anthrax, but, but let me get off these details because I want to make a point about the anthrax. Um, I want to make a point about 9-11 and the anthrax. And that is that in the, um, when you go back to 9-11, you have to, you have to realize that the 9-11 attacks slash anthrax are a seamless uh, plot. And when you said, was it a false flag? The government blamed it like they did on Lee Harvey Oswald with the JFK assassination. He didn't do it. We can prove that. We can also prove that their patsy, which was Bruce Ivins, didn't do it. Now, the fact that Bruce Ivins was at Fort Detrick and that that's a U.S. Army bioweapons lab, no longer bioweapons, they call it biodefense, ever since 1969. Um, however, nevertheless, it was an Army lab, an Army military lab. And so if that's what you mean by a false flag, yes, the problem yes, was exactly. you didn't do it. It's another insider who did it that the, that the FBI is covering up and blaming on Fort Beach. Okay. So anyway, this is all going to be in the Lawyers Committee's filing uh, that will be filed with the U.S. Attorney for the D.C. Uh, District, uh, District of Columbia in Washington, D.C., no later than this coming Friday, just before the anniversary on Saturday. And we will be announcing that at our Lawyers Committee event, um, which is a magnificent um, global live-streamed event. I'm going to tell you a little bit about it now. Um, if everybody could go to, at some point anyway, to Barbara's items, and I'm going to read you the speakers who will be live at our event. It will, in, in order to... Um, to get access to watch it live on the live stream, it starts at 1 p.m. Eastern, goes to 9 p.m. Eastern, Eastern zone time in the United States. So, you know, look at your time zones so that you don't miss any of it. So at 1 p.m. 1 p.m. Eastern, this coming Saturday, September 11th, um, to get access, you go to the Lawyers Committee website, which is LC, that's Lawyers Committee, LC4, F-O-R, 911.org, LC4911.org, and you click on that, and you can't miss, you might have to scroll down just a little bit, but not much on the homepage, and there will be, a, you click on the, uh, the poster or the flyer for the event, um, which you will also see on my items uh, here on the program uh, homepage. Item for number one. Number one. Um, so if you go to LC4911.org, click on that poster or scroll down and there's a link to click um, to donate to be able to um, get a quote ticket unquote. 
Um, you'll be able to watch it live, and you'll also be able to see the archive uh, free for 24-7 for a week. Um, and uh, I'm going to read you the list of the speakers. And then I'd like to take a little bit of time here to let you know what other main 9-11 events your, your audience, your listeners, uh, can watch live uh, in the lead-up to 9-11 so that everybody can, uh, can understand where we are in history right now. So... Um, the Lawyers Committee for 9-11 Inquiry, there will be four board members. We have six board members. We did have Ed Asner, who unfortunately passed away oh, about yeah. a week yeah. ago. And we are going to announce that we have uh, elected him unanimously at our last board meeting as the honorary president and chairman of the board uh, until September 15th. And we are going to do, we're going to open our event with uh, a memorial and uh, uh, an honor to Ed Asner. So um, there are four of us members of the board who will open uh, our executive director and president um, until until uh, Ed Asner becomes honorary president at our event is um, attorney David Meiswinkle. Our litigation director is Nick Harrison will be speaking. Um, William Jacoby, who uh, will be speaking at resistance at the grassroots level. Um, uh, he will be speaking and then I will be speaking on an extremely important subject. And my talk is called Seven Days in September. And you remember that's an explicit takeoff on seven days in May about the false flag coup, the famous uh, movie and, and novel. So my talk is called Seven Days in September, The Links of Anthrax to the Day of 9-11 Itself. The information that you'll see in my presentation is absolutely mind-boggling because the government ever since uh, they have tried to blame it on the Lee Harvey Oswald of 9-11 of the anthrax attacks, Bruce Ivins, who we proved could not have done it and didn't do it. Um, the government wants you to believe that the 9-11 happened on 9-11, and the anthrax really didn't start. The anthrax attack didn't start for a week. That the first letter wasn't received uh, until the 18th of September, seven days later. That's the title seven days in September, whereas in fact, my presentation is going to blow your mind about the anthrax links to the day of 9-11 itself. It's mind-boggling. And then in our second segment, very exciting, uh, the second segment is going to be uh, other attorneys um, who are doing, remember when I said, no matter where we are in our station in life, whether we have an official position or not, we can maximize we, our, our actions can maximize the power that we do have for good and to fight evil. And so our three speakers in this first segment, this first non-lawyers committee segment, are Ryder Fuhlmich, who is this, you know, now world-famous uh, attorney from Germany um, who has pulled together uh, physicians and attorneys from around the world uh, that, are, that are fighting in uh, – under international law uh, for uh, against the mandates, against mass mandates, against vaccine mandates. Um, so he's going to be speaking about the application of the law, both hopefully uh, in terms of 9-11 justice and also, uh, if you will, pandemic justice. And then Francis Boyle, who is a world-famous attorney, will be next to speak on how how we can indict individuals and, and, and organizations for 9-11 and the pandemic. Um, Francis Boyle is an extremely important world figure. Uh, he, he is the attorney, the international law and human rights attorney, who actually wrote the text of the U.S. law that codified 
the the Bioweapons Convention, which technically, even though the U.S. government has been violating it ever ever since 1969 when they said they wouldn't do it anymore, um, the the Bioweapons Convention that Francis Boyle wrote the codifying legislation in the U.S. for that was passed uh, into law and it's law today, um, that makes it illegal to do any offensive biological weapons work. And we know that the anthrax and the anthrax letters were such a violation. And there is strong evidence that whoever actually did um, the genetic engineering, the gain of function genetic engineering to produce the coronavirus in the first place, that also was in some kind of a bioweapons laboratory. Hold on, hold on. We are at the bottom of the hour. We'll pick this up in the next few minutes. My guests this morning are Matt Campbell and Barbara Honiger. You're on the other side of midnight. We shall return. Richard C. Hoagland here. I'd like you to support The Other Side of Midnight by subscribing to Club 19.5 and thereby joining our unique and growing radio community. Tune in to listen to our fascinating guests, pioneers on the out-there edge of science and thought, and gain access to exclusive member benefits. To do this, just visit our website, theothersideofmidnight.com, and click on the Join Club 19.5 link in the navigator bar or in the left-hand column. Membership costs $19.95 per month. That's 33 tetrahedral cents a day. I mean, it's the price of a couple of cups of coffee. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll gain access to this show and literally hundreds of previous shows on hundreds of different topics going back to 2015 that we have done. Our archive shows have the commercials removed And you'll be able to download the MP3 files directly from the 19-point archives if you prefer. To enhance your listener experience, a new The Other Side of Midnight podcast is being added to all show pages, which will allow you to instantly search the show archives of Radio with Pictures, thus easily accessing the corresponding show. Plus, you can just as quickly access the entire podcast list when you're on the go. I want to personally thank all our Club 19.5 members because without your continuing support, this show would literally not be on the air. Please continue supporting the broadcast to provide you with the most interesting conversation available, talk radio at the cutting edge of science and thought, and if you like what you hear on the other side of midnight, tell your friends and continue growing the show by having them subscribe to Club 19.5 as well, because we need all of you. And when I say we need you, you're the reason we're doing all this. Hoagland, over and out.
And welcome back, everyone. Last half hour to go on this uh, Sunday night, Monday morning, September 5th, slash 6th, 2021. Uh, Barbara, you were giving us a rundown of all the important events surrounding the Lawyers Committee and the, um, I don't want to use the term celebrations, shall we no. say remembrances, right. acknowledgements. Uh, I still bristle at that idea of anniversary. Because this was, a, this was an event that changed history, and we're living with the effects of that changed history. The question I have, and we can take the next half hour, and uh, Matt can join in if he wants to stick around, is how did this change history? What happened on 9-11 that diverted us from a future history that would have gone one way to where future history went another, and only now, 20 years later, has that experience in Afghanistan apparently been curtailed? Yeah, would, is it okay if I finish talking yeah, sure, about sure. the, events, the yeah. events that are coming yeah, up absolutely. and then get into that big picture because there are clear answers to that big picture question? Um, so I, was, I just want to very quickly run down um, who's going to be at our Lawyers Committee event. So I want to encourage people and excite people to go there. Um, so I was uh, giving you, uh, I had just given you the second segment of our event which will be on September 11th, starting 1 p.m. Eastern. Uh, and you can uh, get a ticket, if it were, as it were, by going to lcfor911.org. And uh, you can donate a minimum amount or, or as much as you are able. Uh, and you will be able to watch it live and also see the archives 24-7 for at least a week. So I had mentioned um, the four of us from the Lawyers Committee, including myself. The second segment, that's the first segment, the second segment goes for eight hours straight. So get your popcorn. Okay? <laughs> wow. Okay, the, the second segment is Reiner Fulmisch. I talked about him, the famous uh, uh, attorney from Germany. Francis Boyle, the world-famous international law and human rights attorney from the United States. And we're going to have Robert Kennedy Jr. Um, Robert Kennedy Jr. is going to be uniquely, I don't think he's ever done it before, but he's going to be talking about um, his uncle, JFK, his father, RFK, he's going to be talking, and this blew my mind. Um, I didn't realize that the World Trade Center attack in 1993, which was a dry practice run um, for 9-11, not very many years later, what, seven years later? Um, yeah. Only seven years later, that, that the World Trade Center attack in 1993 triggered a huge, believe it or not, you know, I hope you're sitting down, Massively increase in bio warfare and bio defense spending in the United States. And we're going to be talking about why that was the case. And um, by the way, uh, RFK Jr. is working frantically in Hawaii right now to complete his book, Everyone Needs to Buy It. When it comes out, you might be able to advance order it now on Amazon. It's called The Real Fauci. And his book will be out shortly if it isn't already. So RFK Jr. will be, will be linking. His uncle's assassination, JFK, his father's assassination, RFK, World Trade Center attack 93, uh, the 9-11 attacks and the anthrax attacks to the bioweaponized coronavirus. Okay, so it's going to be an incredible uh, presentation by Robert Kennedy Jr. Um, in our third segment, we're going to have Christopher Goya, who is the courageous former New York fire commissioner. That's an elected office from Nassau County, New York, whose entire fire commission about a year and a half ago 
voted unanimously to endorse the Lawyers Committee petition to the U.S. Attorney for the Southern District of New York, calling for a special grand, uh, special criminal grand jury to reopen the investigation of what really caused the collapses of World Trade Centers 1, 2, and 7 in New York City and killed Josh Campbell on the 166th floor of World Trade Center 1. Then in that segment, also Bob McElvain, who's uh, a friend of mine and many of us in the 9-11 Truth Movement, including uh, Matt Campbell, and he's a 9-11 victim's family member, also lost his son Bobby in World Trade Center 1 on 9-11. He will be speaking on 9-11 and Empire. Graham McQueen, who wrote the book The 9-11 Anthrax Deception, this time we'll be talking about 9 the 9-11 evidence at the World Trade Center. Um, James Corbett of the famous Corbett Reports out of, I believe he lives in Japan or Australia, I think Japan now. He will be speaking 9-11, 20 years later, what are the lessons we've learned? And then amazingly, Fred Whitehurst, who is an attorney and a chemistry expert and explosive expert. He was the top explosive expert in the FBI laboratory. And he uh, blew the whistle he, when he resigned and blew the whistle on the corruption in the FBI lab, sued the FBI and won, I believe it was a million dollar judgment. So Fred Whitehurst is going, his talk is the Lawyers Committee World Trade Center Grand Jury Petition Exhibit and the Evidence for Controlled Demolition. Um, he has read our petition and he's going to be talking about how there absolutely needs to be a new federal special criminal grand jury. And that's incredible, the head of the explosives department of the FBI lab. Then we're going to have Kevin Ryan. His talk is going to be focusing on 9-11 suspects. He's going to be naming names as far as we know. Um, the fourth segment, and I, I love this, the fourth segment um, is Cynthia McKinney. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, she's the bridge uh, to the uh, fifth segment because uh, Cynthia McKinney is going to, her topic is, it was my suggestion, and I'm so glad she accepted it. Um, her topic is my fight inside and outside Congress for 9-11 and pandemic truth. So that's going to be a really big one, and I really look forward to it. Each of our speakers speak for about 23 minutes, by the way, to get them all in. Then after Cynthia will be Whitney Webb, who many of you, your listeners, may have followed. She writes, if you go online to The Last American Vagabond, is the online platform that she writes for. And she has done amazing uh, investigative research and uh, writing on that site and elsewhere uh, on the um, links between 9-11 slash anthrax and the pandemic, which is, of course, the title of our entire event on September 11th, our online event. After her is Meryl Nass, um, Dr. Meryl Nass, MD. She is a physician who specializes in treating patients who have come down with the disease from inhalation or cutaneous anthrax. And she is also an expert on bioterrorism. And you're going to love her talk title, quote, the road from 9-11 and the anthrax letters to world takeover. Okay, I can't wait for that one. Mm -hmm. um, and our fifth segment is going to be very exciting. We're going to close out our event. Um, Bill Jacoby, who's on our board, William Jacoby, he's an attorney. Uh, we're, this is the segment on activist volunteers, so-called ordinary, extraordinary, ordinary people. <laughs> like Matt. Who have never given up. 9-11 truth. They're on the streets. They pass out flyers around the country and in Europe. And we're going to hear from the lead of the 9-11 
Truth Action Project nationwide activist group. They also have a European organization. And Sandra Jelmy out of Canada is going to be the speaker for that. And she's going to introduce a wonderful 10-minute video that they've put together of about 20 activists from around the country and Canada, including herself from Canada, on uh, what the 20th anniversary means to them and that we're never giving up. And I know that Matt's going to be really, really excited to see that video because it's very, very, very moving. Um, then we're going to, and that film is called 911 Truth Advocates. And then, very exciting, and I'm just, I'm so excited to announce this. Um, I've actually funded something that is, has the potential of being as historic as the third beam that was shot into the skyline on the ninth anniversary of 9-11. That was, that was my vision, and I personally executed it and pressed the button on the generator that made that beam go up. And I'll tell you, that was one of the most exciting moments in my life, and this will be too. So between noon and 1 p.m. on 9-11, on this, this coming Saturday, there will be a plane that will be towing a banner, a big banner, that you can see from miles and miles away. It's going to be going up and down the Hudson. We're hoping to get film of it, even going uh, with, with the Statue of Liberty in the, in the, in the frame. And it's towing a banner that reads 9-11 Justice Now! Exclamation point. And after that, there is a URL, a new link, that is a landing page link where everybody in New York City and New Jersey will be able to write it down, go there, and then they're going to see the Architects and Engineers website link. They're going to see the Lawyers Committee website link. They're going to see Firefighters for 9-11 Truth website link. They're going to see Christopher Joy's 9-11 uh, Heroes website link. And they're going to see the 9-11 Truth Action Project TAP. That's the activist group in the, in the country that coordinates with architects and engineers and the lawyers committee. They're going to see the tap link. So we can have millions of people uh, going to our websites because of that. And we have at least a dozen of our activists on the ground uh, along the Hudson and in Brooklyn where the plane will be flying for an hour from one to noon East Coast time. They're going to be taking video. Those videos, are, those clips are going to be fed in to our live stream operator, um, our, our tech guru, who is Alan Reese of No Lies Radio out of Berkeley, California, and he's going to be playing those clips of that plane flying that banner uh, to close out our event um, that had just happened a few hours before on this Saturday, September 11th. Now, I'm just going to really move quickly to the other events that everybody needs to know, online events that you can go to that are very exciting. In addition to our Lawyers Committee event, which is on September 11th from 1 to nine East Coast time. I'm going to give you the first one, which is on Thursday, uh, this coming Thursday, the 9th. And that is the 9-11 Film Festival out of Oakland, California, which has been being put on for the last 16 or 17 years annually. And you will be able to see all those films online. You get a ticket, I put that in quotes, for a minimal donation or as much as you can to support the 9-11 Truth Movement in Northern California. Um, with your donation, and that allows you to see all, it's 2 to 10, so it's 8 hours straight of the most important 9-11 films over this past year, and um, you can go there. All of this information is in Barbara's items on this show page, so just scroll down to Barbara's items, my items for tonight's show, and you will have all the links to do this, but 
I'll put it out on the air. The link to uh, to get your tickets for that is no lies, N-O-L-I-E-S, radio.org, no lies, radio.org. And you will get a link um, where you can go to the, uh, the Zoom or whatever the, you know, they're probably using StreamYard or Zoom, but you'll be able to see that live um, on Thursday the 10th from 2 to 10 p.m. And that is Pacific time. So um, do the math for your time zone. And then the other very, very, very exciting event is Architects and Engineers. So on the 9th, so the film festival's on the 8th, Thursday the 8th, Architects and Engineers event is on the 9th and our lawyers committee event is on uh, the 10th and our lawyers committee event is on the 11th and we've coordinated these so they wouldn't conflict because we all work together. So on the 10th, which is Friday, beginning at 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific, go to the Architects and Engineers for 9-11 Truth website and that website is AE, that's Alpha Edward, AE911Truth AE911truth.org. And, so, and there is a link in your item number two. Yes, there is. Radio so if you go there, um, if somebody doesn't, it's just listening on a phone, they won't be able to see that. But if you go to AE911truth.org, um, right at 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific, um, you will be able to watch Architects and Engineers, approximate one hour and 20 minute new documentary. It's a blockbuster documentary. It's called The Unspeakable. And they have interviewed um, at least a dozen 9-11 victims, family members, including Matt Campbell and his family. They have also videotaped Matt, and perhaps Matt can speak to that, other members of his family, physically taking the petition down to the U.S. Attorney's Office and presumably also the coroner's office. That is in the film. And after this film, and there's also a surprise breakthrough in the film. I'm not at liberty to tell you, but it's huge. It's huge and it has to do with another coroner in the United States. Okay, very, very important linking the US coroner's actions in the future with what Matt is doing and his family is doing in the UK. And on that same program, after the documentary called The Unspeakable is over on the a &E website, then Rosie O'Donnell will be interviewing three 9-11 victims' family members, including Matt Campbell and Bob McElvain and one other, two others. So that's going to be a really exciting program. Um, so you've got the 9-11 Film Festival. You can watch live on Thursday the 8th. You can watch the A&E film preview of, the, of their documentary for the 20th anniversary unspeakable uh, and Rosie O'Donnell interviewing Matt and other 9-11 family members immediately after live on Friday, September 10th from 8 p.m. at 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific. And then the next day on Saturday, beginning at um, 1 p.m. Eastern to 9 p.m. Eastern, do the math for your time zone. You can watch this amazing Lawyers Committee for 9-11 event. Um, that is the one that, that I am involved with and I've been basically co-producing. Uh, and then one last thing that's extremely exciting for us is the 9-11 activist group uh, in Europe, which I'm also a member of, Richard Gage is a member of, many of us are members of. Um, it is a tight-knit activist group that really gets things done. Um, Jan van Aken of the Netherlands is the head of that organization. 
and he is he and his colleagues there have created a new organization called I believe the name is the Alternative Media Group or the Alternative Media uh, something. In any case, they are putting on a 12-hour live event oh in the God. largest auditorium in Utrecht, the Netherlands. And that will, they will be live streaming part of our Lawyers Committee event on a big screen within five of our auditorium in Utrecht, the Netherlands. So that's the lineup for this anniversary. I'm really excited. I'd like to hear what Matt thinks about all that. Uh, yeah, I mean, I'm actually, I'm not speaking on Friday. Um, oh, I, I thought you were. I can't do anything okay. this year. But um, okay. yeah, no, I mean, it, it's, it's good that there's so much on. Uh, I'm obviously, I did take part in the um, A&E um, film that's, in the film. Uh, that's, that's coming out, un Unspeakable. Um, there was, yeah, my, my, both my mother and brother are in it and um, a couple of friends as well. Oh, good. Um, hopefully have made the final cut. But, um, yeah, we in the end, actually, we didn't physically hand over something to the UK Attorney General. They wouldn't actually oh, okay. take a physical um, copy, not not by, by hand. It had to be... Um, posted which is a bit bizarre but i mean we've obviously done an electronic submission i mean well actual... i think they want a record they want an official postmark yeah I, it's a bit bizarre you can't actually hand it in mm -hmm. um that's but, very uh, interesting matt do you have proof of delivery oh yes yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh -huh. uh, they, and they they give you a, a receipt so we, we know they've, they've taken um delivery of the physical but no we didn't let the electronic um submission uh -huh. on the the 26th um you know, so that they have it, they, and the print form is just to help mm. them. Um, I understand. Yeah, we do the same thing with the lawyers committee. We usually have a backup. Yeah. Yeah, guys, we only have a few minutes left, and I have to ask a yeah. critical question because Barbara, you intimated before, <clears throat> both of you guys, what is the relationship between the lawyers committee here and Matt's brief there, and the interaction between the two legal uh, proceedings? Well, there's no formal interaction. However, when people on Friday, September 10th, go to the Architects and Engineers website, AE911Truth.org, at 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific, and you watch that new documentary of Architects and Engineers called The Unspeakable that Matt and other family members and friends are in, as well as many others, um, there is a segment in there that is the link. I'm sorry, I'm not able to. Oh, okay. So that's the secret. That's the surprise. That's the big reveal. Okay. Big reveal. Big oh. reveal. But it's a coroner here in the United States. So okay. that's all I can say. That's the bridge. Yeah. The, the, link, the link for me um, with the Lawyers Committee is it's actually what encouraged me when I, I think I came out in 2018, Barbara, when I met you. Yeah. And um, so, you know, the fact that it's the grand jury. Um, petition that had been submitted which i'm a signatory of and um it just encouraged me to to you know move faster with what i wanted to do in the uk um you know just because of the evidence they had assembled it was like actually you know we could easily do this in the uk and it'd be quicker i i always felt it'd be a quick route well to that's not trivial matt because just like your suit as it proceeds up the chain is going to trigger other families you were triggered by barbara and her colleagues in other words this is part of a community effort where we yes. all realize we have more power yes. if someone shows us we have more power
power. Just take your power and use it for good wherever you are. That's the message here. Yeah. That is so cool. Yeah. That is so cool. Okay, Matt, first, uh, final thoughts. Where do we go from here? Give me a give me a scenario. Where will we be a, a year from now? Well, uh, crikey, um, I would hope um, we would be probably waiting on a high court decision to um, to basically uh, follow through with what the Attorney General has given his authority on, which is to quash my brother's uh, first inquest and to hold a new one uh, and to, to present evidence or allow evidence in a court of law that showed that his cause of death um, was not um, through the plane and fires causing its collapse and the death of my brother, but through explosives and incendiaries. Um, I don't think realistically we'll be in a coroner's court unless we, we do that um, fast track route with a senior coroner. But let's assume, you know, we go down the traditional route. Um, I'd at least like to be at the high court stage where, um, yeah, we, we would be represented again or have to be represented by a, a barrister um, you know, in, in the high court. And again, and, um, other families, other British families can join in your suit at that point, right? Um, well, it's, not, it's kind of because it, it is my brother's inquest that we're reopening. So, I mean, they can offer letters of support. So I've already had several from both the US and the UK um, victim family members. But uh, in terms of them joining that suit, no, not really, because it is just my brother's inquest. But there's nothing stopping them. Um, I'm, I'm guessing using the same ah, from filing go, their own on their own family uh, into their loved ones. Um, ah. um, mm. you know, so yeah, I, I'm just, I'm hopeful for me. It's cause it is, it's strength in numbers and you know, the, the more of us that speak out, uh, you know, it's easier to get things done. So I, that's one of the sort of things I'm very hopeful for is it is a bit of a, a, a trigger to, um, to get people to, yeah, take action to stand up and you know, in your power and do stuff, you know. Okay. Same question, Barbara. Where will we be on the 21st anniversary? <laughs> well, see if I'm a prophet. <laughs> <laughs> well, this is an educated prediction. Um, there's been a change in the zeitgeist. Um, we're over the top of that arc of history. I can feel it's going down the other side. I can feel it. I just hope it doesn't go so fast that I'll fall off the roller coaster. You know? <laughs> <laughs> but uh, no, seriously, um, uh, the lawyers committee uh, is just, of course, part of what I do. I also do my own research and uh, I'm going to be writing a movie script. Um, I'm going to, uh, it's going to be called senior project, by the way. Um, and it's, uh, uh, I believe that, that it has the potential of being the JFK of the 9-11 truth movement. We'll see. But anyway, that's my next big project. But for the Lawyers Committee and the move, the 9-11 Truth Movement in general, about a year from now, we're going to have some serious successes. Um, the, when the zeitgeist changes and you get an executive order, and uh, there's going to there's be a lot that comes out that's explosive, I believe, in the declassified documents about 9-11 coming out in the next 60 to 90 days. And that, I think it's going to be just the beginning. Um, and it's not just the Saudis. Um, the Saudis, the Saudis were part of the plot, but their hijacked plot was hijacked by the real insiders. So there are layers to this path the onion, and the Saudis are definitely part of the conspiracy. After all, Bandar Bush was so close to the Bush family that he was called Bandar Bush, right? <laughs> yes. um, so 
So this is this is uh, this is both heavy domestic U.S. politics and the heaviest imaginable geopolitics, because people need to remember that just as the lie about Iraqi WMD was the lie that got us into Iraq and massacred people by the hundreds of thousands, displaced people by the millions, the lie about who attacked America on 9-11, which wasn't bin Laden, it wasn't Al-Qaeda, and it wasn't the Saudis, even though the Saudis were part of the insider plot. Um, the, uh, the lie about who attacked America on 9-11 is the lie that got us into Afghanistan. And finally, um, which is also a war based on a lie. Most people don't know that. They just know that the Iraq war was based on a lie. But they haven't yet gotten it, 100% of the American and world public, that we were in Afghanistan because of a lie. But now we're out of Afghanistan. As soon as we get all of our people out who want to get out, as soon as we're out, then I believe that Biden will burst the whole thing off. Why, why shouldn't he? I don't think he has anything left to lose. Well, he's making a lot of the right enemies by doing what he's doing. In other words, if he wasn't doing something that they are terrified of, there would not be this incredible pushback against ending a war that no American wants. America, as Cynthia said, our government doesn't do almost anything that 70% or more of the American people want. That's what the, that's what the money is about. It's squelching the will of the people, and we've got to do something about it. Well, I want to thank my two guests, uh, Matt Campbell and Barbara Honiger, and of course, uh, Cynthia McKinney for showing up for the first couple hours of the show. We're going to have Cynthia back. We're going to have Barbara back, of course. And uh, depending upon what news through yonder window breaks, Matt, as soon as you mm -hmm. get intel or whatever, please tell us what's going on in England. Uh my uh, thanks to everyone. Well, next week on Saturday, we are going to do on 9-11, 9-11. I have a major surprise for you. So I can tell you at the moment, but it's a major, major surprise. So stay tuned for that. Sunday is another interesting surprise. So happy Labor Day. Take the day off and come back and see us again next week. Until then, third star on the left. Great on to one. Good night, everyone. Oh.